John Gibbons and welcome to another episode of Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is alternative historian and author Michael Tessarian, who is an expert on the occult history of Ireland and America. Born in Ireland, he has researched and cross-referenced the mythologies of the world, as well as his own country's magnificent and mysterious druidic history. Michael's work considers the consequences to civilization of extraterrestrial involvement and answers many of the quandaries that have puzzled other visitation experts. It clarifies the disinformation about Atlantis and the lost continents of prehistory, and it shows that the orchestrated chaos of today's world has roots in ancient times. Looking ahead, Michael offers profound solutions for the future. Michael, how are you? John, nice to be with you. Thanks very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Well, it works both ways. And you're somebody whose work I've followed for quite some time. And I'm very excited to have you on the show because you have a great amount of knowledge that I think you can impart to our listeners today. And specifically, you would like to talk about the occult history of Ireland. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself first, Michael, for the uninitiated or those who mightn't be familiar with your work to date. Well, I'm from Belfast. I grew up right in the middle of the Troubles, you know, uh, my father was a Protestant, but uh, again, one of the bizarre twists was that he favored or he supported the Republican cause. He was nonviolent, I must say that. He didn't support uh, any kind of arms struggle because, as a matter of fact, he was a Marxist. And uh, he had, uh, he followed the sort of outline of Gandhi, you know, uh, and so on. And he felt that uh, through political action, change could take place. So through him, uh, as I say, even though he didn't support armed struggle, he knew everyone. He knew Adams. He knew that he, he knew everyone from every conceivable political party. Uh, his uh, he was very closely affiliated with the Connolly Association. So as I say, and then the United Irishman, he looked to that history himself. He was very imbued in it, and so uh, he exposed us to it, in the sense that uh, he knew the history. He knew the history to a certain extent. Of course, I've been able to take it a lot further. But I think just the basics of growing up in the middle of Belfast in the, in the Troubles was a very important part of my journey. And then having this father who was very, very active, both in Dublin, you know, he wrote for, you know, the newspapers down there, editorials and what have you, who's very, very closely associated with uh, the Economy Association, as I say, and many others, the civil rights movement, what have you. And so he would always lay on us. Later, I'd discover, of course, this is more the official line, you know, not the occult history. We're here today to talk about the occult history. But again, it, was, it rested very largely on... Um, First, you have to sort of lay down the basics. You know, it's like the sort of Picasso philosophy before you can become an abstract artist mm-hmm. or a cubist. Let's learn how to be a proper draftsman and a proper artist, and then you can break the rules later and look at other things. This is kind of the way it worked. And then, and um, so long before I ever really was interested in any of the stuff I'm interested in, now, long before I even fe- felt a personal uh, Irishness, Long before I even felt the spirit of Ireland in my blood, which is very important to have, you know, you can may, you may live in, a lot of people live in Ireland, but very few of them are actually really that interested in thinking outside the box or even feeling the true spirit of their land. That didn't really click for me, but at least the groundwork through him and his ranting and his raving and, you know, and, 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 and his, his take on the official line, you know, it was all a background story, you know, a background sort of filler yeah. to let me know a little bit about English, uh, Irish history. Then, of course, the famine, you know, and then the British history, the British scenario. 
uh, as I said, he being a Protestant, but then affiliate, you know, very much uh, taken on the fact that, you know, England shouldn't be there and that this is a huge colonial network that subjugated lands in far away areas. You know, this kind of background that maybe a lot of kids in those days in the 1780s probably didn't know, I kind of did. And then I'd say that the next thing that happened in my personal biography is probably around 1980. Uh, my interest in something odd going on happened a little bit earlier, around about the 76 mark, where there was this spate of uh, serial killings. You know, these uh, young men in Belfast were being ritually murdered. Yeah. And then, of course, within a very short time, that was actually uh, traced back to pedophile. Uh, here we are again. You know, I mean, how, look how appropriate this is, uh, given the climate today. But back even then, this was happening, and the whole of Belfast was horrified by it because they'd never seen such killings. And it was traced back to elite conservative politicians, you know, who have a diplomatic bag, who come and go when they bloody well feel like it. And, and, and it was basically officially traced to this ring uh, of these uh, conservatives, top elite politicians, and not to mention the kind of uh, royals that they are also hobnobbing with. So sort of, you know, that kind of was also important. And, and in retrospect, that became very important to the work I would do later on. But then around 1980, and we were staying in Dublin, i never forget this because... Um, it was a little bit around the time, I think it was the same year that I was being exposed to the work of Jim Fitzpatrick, which was kind of a, a, almost a, a fluke, actually, because going to a Protestant school, the last thing you think you're going to see on the teacher's desk is a, a book on the ancient uh, history of Ireland, right, written Absolutely. by Jim Bloody Fitzpatrick. Right? But the book was a beauty, as you well know, his work. It was artistically beautiful, so somebody had got it into the school. And so I lay my hands on it, you know, and actually I think I, I stole it. I think I took it for a day or two home because I couldn't believe the beauty of the art and the story. And I think that same year, though, as I was slowly, slowly being introduced, you know, in the most vaguest way, almost like just in a fictional kind of way, not, not, not really realizing that even though he presented these teachings in a, or he, he presented this history in a kind of fictional way, let, lo and behold, this is actually rooted in the authentic Irish mythological cycle. See, that, that kind of stuff I'd learned, you know, a few years later. But browsing this book more from an artistic point of view, and for your listeners who don't know who Jim Fitzpatrick is, he, he's, the, he's the famous artist who designed a lot of most, almost all of Thin Lizzy covers. He's the artist who came up with the famous Che Guevara image that a lot of people wear in their T-shirts and so on with a famous beret. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a world-famous uh, you know, Irish artist who lives in Dublin. A very close friend of Phil Linet and many other celebrities. So I was reading this marvelous set of books that, again, a lot of people don't know that he wrote. So people should go and check out his book called The Book of Conquests. And the second one called the Silver Arm. Fantastic books to share with kids about the you know the old old uh, pagan history of Ireland. So, but in 1980, I think my dad had taken me and my brother to Dublin, and I would say that that was one of the most important. It was in the summer, by the way, pretty pretty much where we're speaking right now. As a matter of fact, it was in July of uh, 1980. Okay. And the house we were staying in, cut a long story short, but uh, it was a whole team of people there. You know, uh, the sons and daughters of the friends, my dad's friends, and. From one of their rooms came the strains of the band Planksty. And I would say that it, was, it wasn't until I actually heard Andy Irvine's voice and subsequently Christy Moore that I really became an Irishman. So even born in the country, raised by an Irishman, living in the land, I would say that the real spirit didn't move through my blood until I heard that band. And then something very, very, I would only call it magical, very synchro, synchronistic happened and suddenly something happened, you know, in which... Now, I would say from that date, a rite of passage occurred just by hearing, you know, uh, Lemo Flynn's pipes and what have you, that suddenly something else awoken and I'm more serious. 
sort of Irishness came upon me, which I always look back to as being extremely important, along with the Fitzpatrick books. And then subsequently that same year, I think I had to go to America for, I think it was actually the first time. Yeah. And it was, it was actually in America then that the technical aspect of actually reading more scientific, you know, more, more historical uh, books uh, then came into my life. It's almost like when you go away from the mountain, you know, the famous immigrant story. Now you you fall in love with your country because you're no longer there. It's the old immigrant syndrome. Of course, and yeah. so when I was in America, that's when I actually started to get the head down into the official histories, you know, which then did speak about the historical and mythological cycles. And then the rest is history. From there, it slowly, gradually started to widen and widen and widen the vista of understanding as you plow through all the official stuff, which you end up finding out is a lot of rubbish. And then you start getting deeper and deeper into now what I would describe as the occult history of the, of the country, you know. But I'd say to anyone, you say somebody's listening to this even from Colombia or South America or South Africa or Australia or wherever, each person's country that they live in is the microcosm of the criminal history of the world. Because the, the, the history of the world is a criminal history. Ultimately, it's, it's dirty. It's a dirty history. But instead of starting with the bigger picture, what, me starting with the story of Ireland, you see, in itself became a microcosm for the work I'm doing now in studying what the machinations, first you think you're just studying the history of your own country, you see, but that has percolations, that has ramifications for the whole of world history. Mm-hmm. So even if a person just starts studying Portugal, you know, wherever, Colombia, Mexico, you know, start with their own history, America, start with their own history, and from there, the rest will take over and you'll find out a great deal about the rest of the world subsequently. And that's the journey you've been on pretty much ever since. I find it fascinating um, that, that you mention your Planksty incident in 1980. It's the power of music, something I'm very tuned in with myself. And it, it really can, music can spark certain feelings or certain openings within us or within our consciousness that I think um, a lot of people are quite often closed off to when it comes to maybe sitting, sitting down in front of a book or listening to somebody speaking. I think music is, is a very valuable tool that we can use. And I think if more people saw music as a tool, it could, be, uh, it could become something that would bring about a lot of positive change in the current environment and current world that w- in which we live. Well, exactly. And I, when I read your bio, that's why I wanted to share that little anecdote. Is because we already spoke about how important music is uh, in, in your life and, and what you're doing, either to spread the message on a more of a subliminal level or even a more, more open level. It, yeah. it doesn't really matter. But the point is that when you're hearing a band like Planksteen, and I speak of them specifically, uh, and even their own bands independently. What are you, you're, not, you're not just hearing Planksty, you're hearing Old Carolyn. You're exactly. hearing Sean Arita. You're hearing the history of Ireland and their music. So that was why it was important. It was a house in Belgravia, as I remember. I remember exactly where standing on the landing. And this was probably the first time I'd ever been exposed, not just to the baldy ballads of some local bar scene crap, you know, but this was the real, authentic music of the men who love their music and love their land. And something, like I said, the book hadn't quite done it. Various anecdotes on TV hadn't quite done it. Living in Ireland and being born of an Irishman, you know, that, that didn't quite do it. Him rambling on about his, you know, his family lines and who's connected to who. You know, that hadn't really done it. But five seconds of listening down the Irvine, you know, and, and it did it. And that's the magic that you can't really put into words. And, and I would say that that was a very inspiring moment. It was some sort of rite of passage that then led to, you know, as I say, a, a deeper investigation and inquiry into the true history of that land. Absolutely fascinating. And Michael, there will be a lot of people listening and they'll be wondering, right, occult history of Ireland. I mean, we've read our history books. We went to school and we know what happened in Ireland over the last two, three, four, five hundred years, whatever. What's an occult history of Ireland? Well, exactly. That, that, that begins, believe it or not, in prehistoric times, of course, right back to the time of Egypt, believe it or not. Uh, uh, certainly, one could, uh, even officially, they admit that Egyptoid Scythian 
they call them the Milesians, of course, came over from Spain, you know, about 600 BC. I've since realized that that date is fictitious. It's probably about, they were already about uh, 500 years before that. So approximately 1,000 years BC is when the really earliest colonization, because if you're talking Ireland, you're talking invasion, massacre, genocide, colonization. Part of the spark that got me to write the Irish origins work and do all this is the fact I couldn't believe that the genocide of the Druids and the genocide of the Irish people is just a footnote in most history books, you know. But again, back to your question, yes, it is prehistoric, but then it moves up in waves. When you turn the pages of the criminal history, then you're hearing about the famine, and you're hearing about the coming of the Normans, and you're hearing about the, the coming of Henry II and what have you, and even Cromwell for that matter, and then up to the more famous, more, you know, well-known scenarios of the Battle of the Boyne and the, and the, the British Crown and all. But long before any of this, it, it goes way, way back. And then when you, as you said, when people say they know the history of Ireland, they don't. They know what they've been told about the history of Ireland. And when you find out who's doing the telling, some big red flags start rising up because you're either, you're either going to be hearing from some Jesuits, which is uh, bad, bad news, mm. or you're going to hear, be hearing from the, the, more, the, the, the side of the cron, you know, and, and behind the scenes, if you, people follow my work, you'll know that they're pretty much all in cahoots. So you're hearing a, a history that's been extremely stripped down, extremely skewed, by some very artful people who have agendas of colonization on the whole world, and particularly on Ireland, dating right back even to the time when there used to be the prohibition about even traveling too far to the west uh, because you'd fall off the edge of the world. Do people realize that that was specifically designed to stop people even going to Britain to find out about the history of the Druids, that they'd even go so far as to concoct this preposterous idea that, and, and even forbidding it, that you couldn't even travel because they were deadly afraid that, again, uh, the, the Vatican would be, you know, threatened by the, the discovery of the role of Ireland uh, to the merchants and to the, the, the sort of independently wealthy, intelligent men of the Renaissance and so on. Yep. So there's a huge conspiracy involved there. And so when you talk about occult history, it is part, I'm not saying that all the official history is wrong, of course not, that it, it is, a lot of it is very, very accurate. But there is another thread going underneath it, in which, yeah, people may have heard of the famine, people may have heard of, you know, Margaret Thatcher and the Queen of England, but have they really heard of the, of the Charles de Lorraines and the Guise family, you see, and, the, and the, the, the Norman invasion, the Cecils, the Marlboroughs, you know, uh, these Montgomerys and the Wards and, the, and the, the Dukes of Lorraine and the Plantagenets, you see, there's a whole, the occult history is really a, an investigation of who is the, really the moving. It's always about looking up the pyramid to find out, here's, or, you know, here's a bunch of worldly events, but do they just happen by random? Or are there brains behind it? Who sends these knights? Who decides to colonize? Yeah. Who decides to, you know, uh, uh, to, by sword, to force an entire people to convert either to a religion or to a new monarch? And if they don't do it, they're all going to be slaughtered. No, is this just random activity here? So I, in my work, have discovered, no, of course it's not random. There is actually an agenda behind it, a very secret agenda. And then when you try to find out what that agenda is, why are they desecrating the land of Ireland? Why have they put millions of its people to the sword or forced them to be indentured slaves, uh, even slave trade, getting them out of the land and so on, and, and, and uh, disabling the industries there and ruining the economy. You know, all of these things are machinations, the suppression of the Irish language and so on, and everything we could mention that a lot of your listeners are probably very familiar with. And even now recently, the same thing is going on with the meltdown that's just happened in the last lot of years. And even more recently, we've just seen the Queen of England coming over and shaking hands with a potential enemy with big smiles on their faces. See, but Michael Starn isn't uh, particularly, you know, uh, taken in by that. He hasn't been for a very long time. He knows what that means. He looks at the dates. He looks at the astrological timings that these things happen, and he knows what the symbolism behind it is. Because the symbolism is one of the key ways into this to understand what's really going on. 
uh, and there's still stuff going on to this very day that is a concomitant or an outcome of, of 20, 30, 40 years of violence and, and political activity and the undermining of Ireland, both north and south, in which both sides of the community, though they be at loggerheads, have both been undermined by an even more secret you know, uh, agenda. You see, both of them have been uh, betrayed. And more than that, an old, even much more deeper occult agenda stretching much, much further back. There's a desecration, as I say, even of the, of the ancient monuments of Ireland. You see, one can get into that to prove that there's been a very age-old desecration of Ireland, not just back to the language and the Norman invasion and what have you, but even going further back into this more prehistoric uh, situation. But even the simple fact, John, that King Menes, you know, the first king of Egypt, yeah. the first king of the first dynasty is buried in County Tyrone, that a daughter or granddaughter daughter of Scotia, and maybe even the ashes of Scotia herself, daughter of, of the pharaoh Akhenaten, is, is buried in County Kerry. The Egyptian beads, Egyptian relics have been found in tombs. Barbary apes have been found at Navan. Those are not taught in history school. So you don't have to go very far, you know, to discover that there is an occult history that's not been told to us. The origin of the, of the Irish alphabet, the fact that half the Bible is full of Druidic motifs, that Hebrew and the so-called Aramaic language is actually a form of Gaelic, by the way, that the 12 tribes of Israel, the names of them are, are proto-Gaelic. Things that no, nobody, unless you know where to go to read by, you know, and these, are, again, are not going to be taught to you in official colleges and schools, aren't they? You have to sit at candlelight in your own house and do the real study of the world, and then you find out what the hell's been going on. And that in many, in many cases, many of these universities have been created to wave you over in their direction, going, hey, come over here, laddie, we'll tell you the history you need to know. And that people then trust that. And then they, they get a degree slapped on their face, like you might as well post a lost dog poster on a lamppost, and suddenly they paste a PhD or a BS, whatever, on your face and now you're getting an authority on something? Bullshit. And so the world is admired in this traditional sort of, you know, uh, propaganda, I wouldn't even call it propaganda, yep. more propaganda distributed by the media, and suddenly we believe it. And then it's like, oh, it's so good to see it progress now. There's Lizzie shaking hands with Marty. Uh -huh. Wonderful, progress at last, let's move forward. I'm rolling around, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And the examples you've given there, Michael, should set alarm bells ringing in the, by themselves. I mean, the simple fact of these historical, provable historical facts, the, the idea that these aren't taught in schools and in colleges and in history, which they're not, that in itself should set alarm bells ringing for most people, I think, if they actually just looked at the brass tacks there. Because why would we not be interested in discovering this kind of information? Why would we not want to go to Kerry and see such burial sites or to Tyrone and see such burial sites. To me, that would be fascinating. And I think to a large number of people who would genuinely like to know about history of Ireland or whatever country they ha happen to be in, that would be fascinating to them. So the fact that this is suppressed information and is not freely available, for me, certainly would say to me, hang on a minute, something is not right here. There's, there's something right. going on. It doesn't take much. Go up to Newgrange, listen to the, the tribe that they tell you, these guides who know nothing. Find out, as I did, that the main stones, foundation stones of New Grange, Darth and Nog, have been turned inwards, face inwards, to hide the astrological, astromantic cryptograms and, 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 and the hieroglyphics that were there in order to disguise the intelligence of the uh, ancient peoples, the sophistication of their language, the sophistication of their music, the fact that they had incredible mathematical knowledge uh, proven by the top scientists in the land. People who visited my website can see this. If they go to irishoriginsofcivilization.com, go over to the appendices page, you'll find the latest work from the latest scientists showing that the megalithic yard, which was the measurement that was used in most of the monuments throughout the world, I might add, 
gets purer and purer, right? That means more mathematically precise. Mm -hmm. The further west you go and the earlier in time you go. Well, look, I don't need to write a 700-page book on the west, the east, origins of civilization. That anecdote will do it on its own. That the further you go back in time, right, and the further west you happen to go, yeah. the megalithic yard, one of the most precise measurements of every known massive site throughout the world, these alignments, the constellation, is more precise earlier you go back until you lead to the door of Newgrange. And then you go there and just study that one place. You don't need to go to too many places. Just study the history of Tara. Just study the history. You know, like I said, why are those, why are those Barbary apes discovered there? Why is it named after females? As I say, more deeply, why is Scotia's great? Who the hell is Scotia? Why is Scotland called Scotland? And more and more precisely, why is Scottish right called Scottish? You think it's after the country? Think again. It's not. You got the head of Akhenaten at the top of the Masonic uh, compasses. And down the right-hand side, you got Scottish right, and it does not relate to the country. It relates to a particular female, a very important character in Irish history that most people, Irish history, don't even know about. Mm -hmm. So yes, you, you better believe it. There is a, an occult history, and maybe you know people will get more interested in it. And and like I said, it's a, in one way, it's miserable because it is a story of great pain and sorrow and genocide and what have you. But at the same time, it is ultimately very fascinating. So just like you approach it, like you do any subject, you try to approach it logically and uh, as you well probably know by re reading my work and other work in this field yep. how many people who are into this field actually got into it by trying to refute us this is actually quite well this is a quite common phen phenomenon actually that very many people including the kind of graham hancock types originally got into so-called conspiratory conspiracy or controversial matters alternative history because they set out to actually refute it five minutes later after they sat on this you know uh, Journey, although I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them who the hell are these guys bringing up all this mumbo-jumbo. Five minutes later, they're right into the same material we are, and they're going, holy shit, it's true. Amazing. Absolutely It doesn't amazing. take much. We're going to obviously talk about uh, a wide variety of subjects that tie into the occult or the, the hidden history of Ireland. So would you like to start from the present time and kind of work backwards, or will we go right back in time and work up, or what way would you like to do it? Well, we can take this one. As, as I said, this uh, meeting between uh, Mark McGuinness and uh, Sinn Féin, you know, and, uh, and the Queen. Look at the astrological timing. It's important. What, what was Venus doing? Why is it very close to the 12th of July and the 13th of July? Why is it, why is it midsummer? Because in most of Europe, it's actually bang on midsummer. Mm. And the other transits of other planets is important too. Then even, uh, one could say even more importantly, the recent discovery this week of the fact that there is a quote-unquote Atlantis, naturally it's, that word is used quite broadly, but there's been discoveries beneath the ocean, the North Sea, of a land bridge, something I've predicted for many, many years now, has been discovered between Denmark, this is the Scandinavian countries, right, and England. Now, let's just start there. When these land bridges are discovered, and subsequently they'll probably find the one I've been predicting between Ireland and England, by the way, but just, but just, but just go on with this one. How can anyone turn the page and just carry on to the next story? The very discovery of that land bridge, and as they admit, the sophistication of it, and the fact that there was, you know, settlements, sophisticated settlements there from millennia past and what have you. How, does that not change the entire face of every single thing taught us about British history? Now, that's not Michael Dostoyan discovering that. That's Ulf Erlikson, the top geologist in Norway who predicted this years ago in his book, Atlantis and Ireland. Yeah. Now it's today, this week, where the top uh, you know, uh, oceanographers have discovered it. And there's many other uh, similar discoveries that I post. I post these on my forum, by the way, so people can go to the Michael Tassarin forum, which is if they go to michaeltassarin.com, just click through to my forum, go to the Atlantis page, and you'll see all of these historical things down through the years that uh, are scientific discoveries that back up the, what I'm saying, because I always go for those facts. But even again, taking this one land bridge that they've discovered, that means 
that so-called remote locations in Scotland, for instance, the Isle of Skye, things that today, you know, the average person would go, oh, but they're so remote and spooky and there could never have been a civilization there. This Commons Beaumont was an idiot. Uh, you know, too remote. How the hell are they remote now when they're part of a landmass that connects with, with Norway, you know? But here's the thing that I do. I may use the science to back up my theories, but I treated, I learned all of this from the ancient myths and legends that always spoke about the, the fact that these lands were connected. So the ancient mythologies is where I went, went first. So it's in the, in the beginning is the ending, as T.S. Eliot said. So when you said, can we start today or can we start tomorrow? It doesn't matter because they all link up. The ancient legends of Ireland, talking about the Picts and their movement to Scotland, you see? Yep. Talking about the Fomor, a, group, a very prehistoric group that was of, of, uh, sadly demonized by the Christian monks, but they weren't anything demonic at all. They were what's known as an aboriginal uh, group who actually considered Ireland to be theirs and theirs alone. Uh, the most primordial uh, group of people, they're lo loosely known as the Fomor, right, which means the giants, the great, the great ones. Mm -hmm. But their secondary name, John, was men of Lachlan, and Lachlan is an old name for Norway. So that land bridge, in the mythologies, if you know how to read between the lines, and, the, and, and by the way, the Fomorans always used to hang around at Tory Island, Rathlin Island, and the north, exactly where you would be able to cross the land bridge or even by sea over to Norway. You see, uh, through Scotland, uh, past Scotland over to Norway, as the Vikings did in reverse years later. The Vikings had colonies all over the north of Scotland and down into Ireland. They did it in historical times. Why couldn't other people do it the opposite way in, in previous times? They bloody well did. So the thing is that the, this ancient primordial group was demonized by the, by the church because the monks got in there, you see. But those land bridges, that, that reading between the lines of the ancient legends tell you that these communiques, at the very least with a ship or by foot, these communiques, mercantile and other, existed in a great landmass that archaeologists and uh, geologists know as Appalachia. It's, yeah. more, it's called Atlantis more in pop, popular, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> in popular spheres of interest. But archaeologically and geo geographically, Iceland, Greenland, you know, northern Scotland, northern Ireland, and up into the Scandinavians was one big gigantic landmass known as Appalachia. And that has been, they've been finding bits under the ocean. Now they've got the technology to do it. Last year or the year before, they discovered that the coastlines of Britain, this is National Geographic, another very, very high level uh, uh, scientist, discovering that the coastline erosion of the whole of Britain, including Northern Ireland, does not fit what is known as the uniformitarian, you know, this would be like the Darwinian uniformitarian uh, ice age scenario. It just simply doesn't fit it. But what it does fit is catastrophism, meaning incredible catastrophes, as was predicted. And, for, uh, and mentioned by Commons Beaumont and, uh, and many other people that are, were lambasted during their own lives, never listened to, their works were suppressed. You know, I, I've specialized in their work. Now the very science is in. So people could go to my forum, check back with the science. That science then echoes the myths. So there is, uh, then we step, take a step down into this whole visitation of Ireland by the Scythian Egyptoids, right? Yep. That itself has been discovered by Lorraine Evans and many other modern-day archaeologists to say we're finding so many Egyptian artifacts today in, the, in Ireland. We're even finding references to Ireland, albeit under you know, the Fortunate Isles, the Blessed Isles, the Lands of the Dead, whatever. In Egypt, in the Chronicles of Egypt, we're hearing references to the land of Ireland. And the King Menes made his journey to the, the bright lands of the West, and he was stung by a hornet when he entered into Loch Foyle, you see, and he died. And he was interred, buried at uh, Kilmane, Mane being Menes, the king's name, Kilmane, in County Tyrone. We have, the, we have the story even in the Christian world of Jeremiah, of Tiatefi, 
You see, so the, even even from the biblical, official, historical, what's known as British Israelite philosophy, and there's a lot of credence to some of that stuff. Uh, Ralph Ellis, my colleague, he's also also gone to great lengths to show that even Jesus Christ, when you understand who Jesus was, not so much the religious figure of religion, but the uh, warrior king, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, was interred in England at Cheshire, you know, in a sort of a man in the iron mask situation under arrest. And, the, and then Mary Magdalene, her presence felt all over France and even into England, starting up the Arthurian legend. So by all means, there is no cult history. But what my work is to try and show is that it's not all fiction. It's not all fairy folk tales and fishwives legends. A lot of this is not to be, we have to re-examine it and see it in the light of actual history. Now, we're at the best possible time, so there is optimism because actually we're at a better time now to dispense with the official history, right? Yep. And get down into the stuff we've learned and, and, and look at it again. And while we're doing that, I can never emphasize enough, etymology, symbolism, etymology, symbolism. When you want to understand the origins of Sinn Féin, when you want to understand the origins of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, you know, or the Clan the Gael, or the Defenders, or the Ancient Order of Hibernians, or any of these other so-called, so-called Republican groups, look at their symbolism. Who were the United Irishmen? Why did they use that symbolism? Etymology? Yes. Start in ancient times with a desecration of words, and the, and the deliberate misinterpretation of words like Eri, Erin, Aria. Ireland is known as Aria land, the land of the pure noble ones. Not I-R, but A-R, the Aria. Look how that word Arian has been misinterpreted down through the years. One of the most egregious uh, etymological, uh, you know, uh, malfeasance is, is involving in some of these terms that actually refer directly to Ireland, number one, and also to the Irish, those who were under the goddess Erin, Era, Ari. That's where we get the word terra from, terra firma, you see. And many other words like area, area of land. Of course, area of land, because those were all sacred to the Druids. So they named the land, area of land, after Ari. She is the land. She is our queen. She is our goddess. You know, and then the various other myths and legends, the stone of fall, you know, whatever you want to call it, the fairy people, all of this comes into play, of course. The prohibitions, and then again, the skewing, the later monkish skewing of the Irish history to create the stupid nonsense about the banshees and the leprechauns. Was it kid stuff or something? Yes, but that's what they've done throughout the world. We're into Grimm's fairy tales now. We're not into the original, you know, authentic history that talks about celestial disasters, earth, tumult, the fighting of races, the coming and going of ancient peoples who were Atlanteans with immense power and partly related to one another and the conflicts that they had, you know, and, and the trying to restore a semblance of order after the great catastrophes had taken place and the tutelary animals, the, the building of the round towers and the ziggurats, you see, to offset further cataclysm. Once one understands some of these basics, the cataclysm, etymology, the, the, uh, the perverting of the terms and the words, and of which many I go into in my, in my books, this all then starts to, uh, a picture will in fact, Fur Ball, one of the earliest groups of, you know, to visit Ireland, they always translated that as men of the bags yeah. and left it hanging, like that's it. What is this supposed to mean, men of the bags? I mean, what is it? They say leather breeches or they're going to be carrying sacks of something around, potatoes around with them or something. What kind of nonsense <laughs> is this? When you go back to the earliest meaning of the word, it means wise. Bolga is meaning fair one after bell. Right? The famous god after Belfast is named. The Baltic is named. Bel, Baal, he is the god of light. Belgrade, the white city. Right? So the white, fair, solar king, Baldur in, in Scandinavian, is the same as the Bell of, of the Irish. Horus is uh, Osiris. All these terms have been misinterpreted. There was no such being as Osiris. He was called Asari. Mm-hmm. Asa is the Scandinavian word for gods. Horus wasn't called Horus. He was called Iusa. 
exactly identical to the name of Isus, the earliest pagan uh, Irish god of the forest. So by this constant uh, inflection and tweaking, they've been able to say, oh, the Vedic pantheon has nothing to do with the Egyptian pantheon, lads. Oh, the Egyptian pantheon has got nothing to do with the Sumerian Chaldean uh, Babylonian pantheon, I'm afraid. Oh, that, this other pantheon over here has got nothing to do with any Teutonics. The Teutonics have got nothing to do with any Gales and Celts. The Celts have got nothing to do with these uh, Egyptians. And we sucked it all in. And yet a fool on holiday can see how come that the stone circles that I'm seeing in Karnak and Brittany are identical to the ones in it over there in Ireland, you know, uh, not even having to get into the measurement stuff. So symbolism, etymology, symbolism, etymology. Look at the symbols of the secret societies. Look at the symbols of the political parties. Look at the symbols that were encoded into the state buildings, churches, synagogues. Uh, you asked me earlier, how did I get into all of this? Yeah. Walk in the streets, looking at the symbolism with an objective eye, saying, wait a minute, how are these Masonic symbols? And we don't have to agree if we like Masonry or don't like Masonry. The very fact is that there's a, there's a sort of a, uh, well, how would you call it, a sort of a, a uh, what do they call it when an artist has a, a palette? A palette. Yeah. A palette of, of symbols that turns up everywhere. What are these symbols that are doing in Cistercian Templar uh, monasteries and lodges doing in Ireland on the, on the ancient mon monoliths? And then you start going, well, one must have come before the other. For instance, here's a perfectly, here's a very, very legitimate anecdote for any skeptic listening. Study the skull. The skull appears at the foot of the cross in most medieval art. Go to the Bible, they say that Jesus was crucified on Skull Hill, Golgotha, yeah. right? Knights Templar, even, even the coffee books are telling you, oh, the Pope didn't like them because they were worshipping the head, the beheaded skull of somebody or other, you know, they think it was John the Baptist, right? But forget about that, just a, it was a head, a, a decapitated head. Now let's join some dots, folks. Which is the earliest group in the history of recorded time who worshipped the severed head? Oh shit, we're back to Ireland, because the, the cult of the severed head, Anyone who knows you know, ancient Irish mythology knows Maka's acorn crop, in which the heads of all of the uh, conquered uh, enemy were cut off, you see, in ancient Celtic times or pre-Celtic times, and gathered together in a big skull hill. The, the, the worship of the skull is, and this is fundamental, ask anyone at any of your official universities, did the Celts and the pre-Celts worship the skull? They go, it's one of the only places they did. It's so conspicuous. The Scythians used to, as a ritual, behead their enemies, you know, at a time of uh, death or, or, or uh, punishment. The, the, the cult of the severed head is more in Ireland than any other country. All right, where's the next place we see it? The Knights Frickin' Templar. Yeah. Now, you're going to tell me that there's no connection between this extremely idiosyncratic motif and then into Freemasonry and Knights Templar? And you think that's the only Irish stroke Templar connection? Far from it. The great Templar families of Burgundy and Champagne, right? This is the Hugh de Payens. And by the word, Payen means pagan, so just dwell on that for a minute. The chief of the frickin' Knights Templar is called Hugh the Pagan. But all his colleagues, all his pals, all his chums, including their wives, by, by the way, I'll be touching on that in the forthcoming DVD I'm doing on female Illuminati, right? But let's leave that aside for now. All those Templars, including their own leaders like Bernard de Clairvaux of the Cistercian Order, were tutored by Irish Chaldean monks. Because never let us forget that Christianity ostensibly came into Ireland about, say, the 6th to 8th century with a group we know as the Chaldees. But these are, no, these are not good guys. These are people who were fil filtering through all the druidic stuff from thousands of years ago. These are people who were uh, put in charge like, a, you know, the loot, the booty, that they had slaughtered all the bards and slaughtered all the kings and slaughtered all the druids. And now they got to do something with all of this uh, information and tradition and ritual that they had to, you know, go through. And so that was put in the charge of a group that's known historically as the Chaldeans. On the surface, they were Christian, but they were a hell of a lot more than that. 
And these are the patrons and the tutors. People go to irishargentsofcivilization.com, go to my appendices pages. All the information is there on that. And these guys were tutored by Irish monks. So you not only have the skull tradition, you not only have the long hair of the Templars and Merovingians, which is an Irish Gothic Teutonic motif of the long hair to represent the goddess, found way before the Celts ever existed, uh, before the Templars ever existed, the white tunics, which is Druidic. So almost everything you're looking at when you talk about Freemasonry, Templarism, royalty, right? And I got the, all of this connections through just studying the symbolism in the cities. Just going there with a camera, as you, can, as you can do today, and look at the names of the streets, what mountains they align to. I mean, Dublin's fascinating for this, but so are many other, other, other cities. Drogheda, for one. Derry and all the other places, right? Derry being named after Dwari, that fucking, you know, the same word for doorway, but it actually relates to the oak trees. Because yeah. the three ancient kings of uh, the mythological cycle sat in Derry. The symbolism is all around you to make these connections, but you won't just see them on Irish, uh, you know, motifs. You will see the same symbols been adopted, cannibalized, and plundered by the most powerful secret societies that exist today. The Star of David, the Irish Harp, the, the Shamrock. Shamrock, my ass. You know what that three Shamrock is? Go over to Newgrange, walk up to the big stone in front of the door there, and take a good look. <clears throat> three spirals. Absolutely These spirals don't make the trick. Every, yeah, every ancient Celtic or pre-Celtic motif, they transmogrified, repackaged, and sold us to back under another guise. Business as usual. And it's been so carefully done, Michael, as well. I mean, you, you mentioned the, uh, the monks and how they filtered information and they, because of Christianity coming to Ireland, they were, they were able to very easily do that because of the hold they had on the minds of people and, of course, their consciousness as well. But that continues on to the present day because I think, um, I suppose on a, on a more macrocosmic level, universities are, are quite similar to that. I mean, people go to schools and universities and they're literally force-fed a diet of whatever dots it has been decided to give us and we don't have the tools or the means or the will in a lot of cases because we're so distracted to actually join those dots but it's it's out there for us all to see hidden in plain sight it is and uh, uh, there are obviously there are obviously people from with academic who've done good work but unfortunately they quickly find out that they have to be silent they're not going to get onto rte and talk all about it yeah so even if they write a little book it becomes obscure you know they can do very little with it and finally they realize look this is just a big elephant i'm gonna have to drop it very few people can go on, especially in the Irish context, because it is so tangled. There are so much, uh, there's so much emotion involved. When, when I'm speaking of people like the Jesuits and the Orange Order, people immediately assume I'm talking about it as they know it to be. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not coming from any partisan point of view myself. <coughs> you know, I'm a, a great lover of Ireland, and I do believe that there, there has been colonization there, but that doesn't necessarily mean I then support the Republican cause, because I'm too smart to be tangled up in this mess. But as you say, you see, you start slowly. People can't, you know, just immediately pull a little string and then the elephant's in the room. Of course, that's obviously difficult. So start off real slow. This is what I always tell the people who get into my work, you know. I put it all there in the biblical context. Jesus didn't ask for public prayer. Jesus said, call no man father. Well, somebody turned over two pages at once then because who's all these priests in black saying, call me father? Where's all this public prayer and public mass? You know. Go down to the next, come down a step into politics. Why do we call it a, a branch? This is a government branch. This is a, a corporate branch. Here's my staff. Staff is a stick, isn't it? A staff yeah. held by the aldermen, the, the high druids. Yeah. Branch is a tree. All the motifs, like we already mentioned in the Bible, right? The terms like Isaac, Asherah, Jehovah, Christ. 
people who read my book will know that all of these are Gaelic terms. They all come out, uh, and actually they're pre-Gaelic if you really want the facts about it. Fact, what, wait a minute, what the hell does Gaelic represent? What does Gaul mean? It means the strangers, the foreigners. Yes, because they invaded the country. So even they're not indigenous to Ireland. The, the highest scientist in, in genetic science, I've got this information on my form and in the book, Stephen Oppenheimer and there's a slew of others, have proven that the Celts, Celtic DNA plays almost no role in Aboriginal Ireland, as I've been predicting for years. Again, by basing it on the mythology. They have now proven it hardcore that Celtic tribes, Celtic DNA, that is certainly identifiable in France and Spain and say even in the Ukraine, what have you, is almost negligible when it comes to the original Aboriginal DNA of the Irish people. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells you exactly what the myths have always been telling you and that Ireland was colonized from the West, you see, and so on. But again, then you turn from the general words, which I do, then you dip down a little bit more into the Yahweh's, you know, that the Yahweh, as I say, relates to the yew tree. Yew trees are indigenous to Ireland. And they, in fact, Ralph Ellis even proven independently that the, yew, that the trees of life that stood in the most sacred temples of Egypt were yew trees descended from the Irish. Incredible. But we know that, yeah, we know that yew trees grow in many, most of the church grounds, but yew trees are older than the churches. So who decided, what architect, decided to plant all the Christian churches beside the yew groves. Hmm, interesting that, right? So then, Levite, coming from the Louis, Isle of Lewis, the headquarters of the Druids, Louis, Lou, the Irish sun god. What does Lou do? He fights Baylor of the evil eye. What weapon does he take out with him? The young man, the young solar king, riding out to save his people to fight the evil giant, a sling. What does he do with a sling? Oh, he fires the slingshot in Gaelic, it's called Taflum. He hits Baylor of the evil eye and kills him, saving his people. Let me think. Okay, that's about three to 5,000 years BC, almost undateable. Yeah, Israelites turn up on the scene, and we've got King David fighting, uh, uh, you know, uh, Goliath. Where do these motifs come from? The Irish harp is played by the Irish before King David even heard of it. On and on and on. But again, this is science. You can decode the terms. The letters I, U, V, and Y that turn up. Elohim. The Elohim, we got Jehovah, that's you tree. Elohim is the Elm tree, the Elm that we now call Elm. But these are ancient words. There's oak trees mentioned in Genesis. See, everyone, everyone knows about right, the tree of life, you know, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, can you tell me about this uh, thing called the Sheshem, the oak tree that's also mentioned in the first book of the Bible? Is, is that not druidic enough for you? And that's so, something you just don't hear every day. Well, it's right there in plain view, but as, as Sherlock Holmes always said, everything's hidden in plain view. The Garden of Eden is named after a Nordic goddess, Idun, I-D-U-N. And then they have a Nordic goddess of the ice called Is, I-S. There's your Isis. Donar is Adon. That becomes Jehovah. That becomes Aton. Nothing in the East was invented there, for goodness sake. The whole lot was taken by Gothic tribes under various names in the days in which the Western world was wrecked by cataclysm about 13,500 years ago. That science is in my work is all the more, you know, pertinent now because some of the science, as I said, I repeat again, the Allen and Delaires have discovered independently that there was incredible cataclysm visiting the British Isles. This is even long before the Bronze Age famine and what have you. This is stretching back perhaps to about 13,000 years ago. But subsequent traumas, subsequent upheavals like Mount Thera erupting and uh, the uh, Storega tsunami in northern uh, Norway and then the Bronze Age famine. You see, other things that people have myopically microcosmically looked at, are connected to a series of disasters, the drying up of the Sarasvati River and so many others I've listed in my works, was, was, was waves of cataclysm, right, mm -hmm. coming on the back of a monumental celestial cataclysm. 
And the sum total result of that was that a vast majority of the population, was never great to begin with anyway, in Britain had to cross these land bridges. That's why these land bridges, are, one can't emphasize how important they are, John, because obviously people have a difficult time envisioning how people would have even crossed to the continent. Well, you got no problem envisioning it, number one, if you believe the myths, because they say they just walked it. Yeah. Or believe now. Look, the, the, the people on the shores of these of, of Argyllshire and other places, even on the Aran Islands, are always telling you that when the tide's down, they see the relics of the ancient peoples. Nobody believed them. Now the scientists are going there and going, oops, what are we going to do now, boss? We found it. Shit, we better pretend we're the founders of it. We better tell us we're the first to discover it. Yeah. What are you talking about? The Ignatius Donnellys, the Commons Beaumont, the Conor McDarrys, the Anna Wilkeses, and so many others have done it years ago, and you slapped them in jail or you professionally assassinated them? Don't give me that. But nevertheless, that aside, that controversy aside, the facts are coming out one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, to prove that Ireland and Britain were not just as isolated uh, by any means. And just in the same way, uh, jumping back to the etymology again, just in the same way that many uh, women's names, Flora, Rosemary, Rose, you know, Anthony, even the male name has come from Anthros, meaning flower. So just as you can have ordinary common or garden names being named after trees, so was Lou, named after the tree. The Levites are named after a tree. Elohim is named after a tree. You know, Jehovah is, in a, Yahweh is an old, old word for the yew tree, a sacred, the most sacred tree, the whole concept of the goddess and the god and the tree. You go back to the old Canaanite Babylonian stela, you know, these hieroglyphics that you see, the, these copper rolls and all the imagery. Why do you keep seeing the tree there? You think it's just decoration? Beside the gods. Or that gods have horns, or a little goat is there with his little horns, like yeah. Moses, Michelangelo with his horns, you see? The symbolism is all there for you. Uh, Jesus being crowned with thorns. Listen, Hern the hunter, Serenos, the most ancient god of the West, so ancient that nobody could even date him, was the first horned god, the, the god with the crown of thorns. His, and do you know what happened? During the Merovingian times of these Templars we're talking about, uh, the Vatican control and the Merovingian control, they systematically went through. I think only one was left. And that was discovered uh, in quite recent times, in historical times. All the uh, shrines and temples of Cernanos, who's also known as Hearn, were annihilated. And other churches were put on top of it to hide the fact that there was a horn god preceding you know, the uh, official dates of history. Until they found the Guldestone cauldron, in which, uh, in more recent times, and they found the image of Cernanos with the antler horns, right, of the, of the antler, the stag. That being the most sacred of all animals, because it... Uh, it didn't get poisoned when it ate off the yew tree or the rowan tree, I can't remember which. So they looked at that animal as being sacred, right? So they always had the crown of horns, the crown of thorns from the stag god, and for other reasons as well. That god was demonized into the horn god, Satan, by the Christians. So they not only desecrated the zones, the sites, as they're still doing today at Tara and other places. This desecration is not 400 years old, it still goes on. Yep. And uh, they took the god's sites and covered them over with their own... Uh, uh, buildings and structures, what have you, and then they took the image of the horned one and simply demonized it into the devil, uh, Cronus, whatever, Satan, what ha have today. So there's everyone in the world talking about Satanists and Satan that, having a faintest idea of the etiology of Satan or a uh, being with horns on his head. They just accept that's evil. They don't even think, where did it come from? Who gave me this concept of evil? So when we first start talking, when you ask that question about they're accepting the official line, yes, they're, everyone accepts the official line about everything told to us by very, very spurious teachers. So I don't, I don't blame people for accepting it, but the fact is you've got the first twig it, that this is not history number one, and secondly, who is teaching it to you? Who's running them? Who gives them their jobs? Who plasters their lost dog degree on their lamppost stroke face that they now feel so proud and so big they're going to teach you all about it?
when they don't know the first thing that's right outside their door. That every single, uh, you know, Norman castle, uh, you look outside your window in most of the towns of Ireland, there's some Norman moat or Norman castle, and they're going, ah, there's no such thing as the Druids. That's all mythology. Oh, yeah? Every Norman castle was built over one of the ancient Druidic sites as the names of the zones and the places or the runnings of the rivers or if you even know how to look at the trees, the, the way the trees grow there. If you know what you're doing, this takes you into studies like Dao, Daozing and Geomancy. But if you know what you're doing, ancient sciences will confirm what I'm talking about, that all the Normans... See, look at this. Let's take one other anecdote for people to mull on. There's actually two I want to bring up. Okay. Let me do them in, the, in, in chronological order. Most people hear about the Irish conflict... Uh, always know it's a they would tell you it's a Catholic or Protestant thing that's all it's about we're just fighting Cromwell they were just massacring us end of story it's a Pope and it's a Queen this yeah. is what goes down in Ireland right oh well I got a problem with that in the 11th century in the 10th century I don't care who you're talking about the coming of Henry II William the Conqueror is the one I'm really thinking about or his other knights very dubious creatures they were to be sure all Templars not forget and what more agents of the Vatican Alexander III and the previous Popes were the ones who sent the Merovingian, who sent the Templar Merovingian, William the Conqueror, right? Not, remember his famous doomsday book. What is the doomsday book? A meticulous breakdown of every chicken in Britain. Amazing. Right, every square inch of land. How many toes your wife had. These boys are going for, and they call for taxation. We know it's for taxation, the doom, doomsday book, right? Yeah. It's a meticulous Look, so what I'm telling you is, look, how, look, look at the difference. They're no different than the people today. So these people were out to actually colonize and to subjugate the land to create indentured slaves. But let's even forget that for a moment. Charles the Devil, nice name that. <laughs> Charles the Devil, William the Conqueror's father. These boys are sent by the Vatican over to colonize. First, they sent a few knights to take a look around, right? I got their names. All right, they like it. They invade in mass. They colonize Ireland. What are we talking about here? They're Catholics. They're sent by the Catholic Vatican. Well, wait a minute. In the 8th century, in the 6th century, Scotland, Ireland, England has been, has been Christianized, has it not? So then to, do me a favor, all you people who think that the great massacres and genocides of Ireland are merely the British crown doing this and that in the Protestant Catholic scenario. The Normans come into your own country, slaughter half the population of Ireland, and they're Catholics like you were. How is that not taught to us too frequently? Oh, books have obviously been written, but you're certainly not going to learn that on the streets. You're certainly not going to learn that on RTE. You're certainly not going to learn that on too many programs and documentaries and books. And you're certainly not going to be told it from school. Every Absolutely focus not. is going to be on, you know, uh, Eamon de Valera. Oh, wave the flag. Yeah, the partition of Ireland. The rising, the rising of the IRA. Everything's focused on recent times. where it is, Or Cromwell, let's say. A Catholic Protestant scenario, and that gets the blood up. And I'm going out there to join some organization and shoot down a bunch of cops and they're going to shoot us down and here we go. Hold on! Before you head out the door there, start waving some bloody flag and ready to die for some goddamn ritualistic psychopaths over in England who concocted this whole thing. Can you put the brakes on for one minute and ask a question before any of those genocides ever happen? And your allegiance to the Catholic Church? They were in your country massacring your people long before? How does that fit the plan? How does that fit the, the view of Irish history? It freaking well doesn't, so people are going to have to stop and go, yeah, wait a minute, hang on here, what's going on? And then you find that those same Plantagenet families are repackaged. They're the same Tudor, Windsor families that are there today, with a Protestant face on now. They're still Guise, they're still Angevin, they're still Savoy, they're still Plantagenet. And they still rule a shop through their henchmen, the John Humes and the Jerry Adamses and all. That's how it's played. 
It's a new scenario done in politics. They're laughing so loud they can't even can't even believe it. You tell your gang one thing, we tell it's Al Capone on one side and Bugs Moran on the other. And when the hell are people gonna wake up? This is what I can't understand. Isn't there evidence in our faces? Both of them smoking their cigars here. Bugs, let me light your cigar here, Al, let me light yours. And the question is for Johnny or Mary sitting at home listening to this now, Michael, and there will be many of them and they'll take on board what you're saying, but they'll have that question, that big, big question. Why? 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 Why is this going on around us? And I mean, there are people who are very sceptical about anything that is in any way conspiracy based. And uh, people are even afraid of the word conspiracy in this day and age, which is ridiculous. But that's that's another story entirely. So why is it? Why is this happening? Well, that that comes under official history. Divide and rule. They did it with they did it with uh, the Congo. They've done it with uh, Mexico. Genocide there. Willful genocide of the conquistadors who were sent out, sent out by the, some of the similar Spanish versions of the Merovingians I'm talking about. They're not much different. They all come from the same line, right? Yeah. Uh, they did it in uh, India. My God, did they do a beautiful job there. They've done it even in Russia. Everywhere, the, 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 so the, this, is not, this is not the conspiracy now. This is a strict, they, we're all taught this part, the divide and rule, the dividers. What I'm doing is just taking things a little bit, you know, again, readjusting the filter of the camera or the, 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 the sort of the, the looking glass, so that you bring more of the theater of this into play. You look in there's more of the dark areas. They have to do it because it's a, it's a strategy of divide and rule, especially when you're dealing with a very, very hardy group of people. Let me, let me come, we've said about the Normans, let me jump to the second anecdote to put the brakes on a few people. Yeah. People will argue, of course, with this. They won't necessarily agree with what I'm saying, but let's look at this objectively. In the Second World War, in the First and Second World War, here's a people who've been plundered, raped, cities like Cork have been burned to the ground, women and children have been murdered, bayoneted, incarcerated, tortured by the British government. Five minutes later, roll up, roll up, lads, we've got to fight these evil Germans, the Hun is at the door, and the, how, many million, how, many, how many thousands of Irishmen joined British brigades for whatever reason, I'm not, in, I'm not indicting the individual here, mm-hmm. But the mere, when we look at this from a historical context, Germany, who never did anybody any harm, who, if anything, would have been very good allies to the Irish people, and and had many things in common. Irish men who seen cork burned to the ground with women and children under the black tans, and worse atrocities than you can imagine even than that. As I say, dating back to very, very, very prehistoric times. Go and join the tyrant to go out and kill men who've done them no harm? That can only happen, that's a, again a microcosm, that, can, that kind of obscenity can only occur through a very systematic propaganda and what I also describe as propaganda mm-hmm. through the media of today and the instilling and instilling of world history lies, you see, and to create full rivals and three-headed monsters at the door. This goes in even into uh, the history of the secret societies of Ireland, which I've, I've done, people can go on. Watch my occult history of Ireland. Just, in fact, just type in on Google occult history of Ireland with my name beside it, and you'll have all the videos and, and the article as well. And you'll find out all the background of what we're saying, which we have, of course, brief time to talk about. But the whole thing's been laid out in the books and in the articles and in the free DVDs I've got up there for you. Yeah. Now, so, you know, and these are just two anecdotes. Not to mention the fact that Sir Roger Casement, big head, you know, big Republican, going to give arms to the boys in Ireland. Oh, but guess what? The, the, so, so, somehow the British troops discovered that the ships are on their way and bomb them. I think it was in Carlingford Lock. And then you do a bit of digging into this wonderful patriot, going to free Ireland. Sir Roger Casement, 
Order of St. Michael and St. George. They don't come any higher. They got to be appointed by the Queen. They're advisors to the Queens and Kings of England. And he just happens to be one. Of all the Republican leaders, of all the great Englishmen who are meant to support the Ivan, he's not the only one. We've got Theobald Wolfe Tone, Thomas Russell, all Freemasons. We've got Eamon de Valera in his one obligatory year in jail, so he has some street cred when he walks out to rule Ireland, a top Freemason. But it's the James Connollys who are shot down in the streets first, and it's the Michael Collins who are taken out because they won't bow down to the agenda. You think I don't know how the game is played? Get rid of the boys. Get rid of the ones who really are, are true. And then put in your popinjays, put in your turncoats, who will shake hands with the enemy. That's how it's done. I and, would and you do that, of course. People of those days, you ask the question, how does this happen? Let's not forget, not only we have a group of dividers who are extremely intelligent and have a ancient, you know, way, ancient strategies, but my God, John, think back to your father's life. Think back to his father's life. The illiteracy, the lack of reading, mm. the no books, the no, the no access to, to books. And of course, these guys then are the, are the very people who can write the history. So... For example, when, when, when the New Ireland comes to pass with De Valera, etc., etc., who's going to be writing the history books that everybody is then reading and taking at face value for the next hundred years? I mean, it, when you scratch beneath the surface there, it's contradiction layered upon contradiction. And now that we are in a position to scratch beneath the surface, it becomes patently obvious with a little bit of research and a little bit of study. Did you know, did you know look, look, let's, let's bring in America. Did you know that the White House was designed by an Irish architect? I didn't. He's called James Hoban, and he was a mason. And the design of the building is based on one that's in Leinster to this day that was the first Masonic lodge in Ireland, John. Uh, you're a conspiracy not to use you guys. There's no such thing as conspiracy. Where did you get all this? Uh, well, do you want a few facts or you just want to stare at the TV? Well, I think we're in the business of facts here. Right. The Knights Templar, right, they were hiding in Ireland. When the, no, no, believe me, I'm not buying into the official story of their suppression in France. That's a separate question. Uh -huh. But a few groups were purged for inner fighting reasons. And a lot of them went over to Scotland, as we know. But very few people know that the, some of the most powerful Knights Templars, when they had to relocate from France, didn't go to Scotland. They went to Ireland. And they set up that Linster House. It's known as Kilwinnig Lodge Number 75. That building, my dear friend, is the basis of the White House. And, and then even in my work, people will know that even the term White House refers to the houses of economy in Egypt. The White House called Per Hetch was the treasury building was called in Memphis was called the White House. White Hall has been used as the center of uh, royalty, and not so much now, but in the past, White Hall, White House. You see, they're, they're alluding. And then also the contents. Did you know that over the door inside the Oval Office in the White House, you have these Egyptian symbols and what have you? Did you know that the whole, of the whole of the laying out of Washington, D.C. and the White House and the monument was done under the rising of the star Sirius, sacred to the ancient Egyptians and the goddess Isis, and so on and so on and so on? And that this has been revealed by insiders of the Masonic Lodge and by other independent uh, mathematicians and, and uh, astro, astrophysicists and whatever you want to call them? That these people, that look at the dates. that The founding stones were put in, 13th of October, 1792. The cornerstone of the White House was set in place. You know, right up to the modern days. Who are these St. Clairs? Who are the St. Clairs? Who are they? Uh, remember, if you, if you have any people go to even the very first uh, five minutes of the Occult History of Ireland video that's on YouTube, they will hear a comment from my good friend Andy Power, who, uh, not Andy Power, but uh, another colleague of mine, who states the fact that the IRA was created as a uh, full organization to undermine the left wing original IRA that did have some uh, left-wing leanings, probably based on the teachings of James, James Conley, of which I have great favor myself. Uh, 
difficulties with some of it, but I understand the general principle. But that was a big threat to whom? The oligarchs, that the oligarchs of the world, my dear friend, do not just live in Buckingham Palace and Scotland and Northern Ireland. There are as many oligarchs, super wealthy families, Livingstone, uh, Marlborough, right, the Churchill family, Cecil. Cecil's a Guinness. When you call it Guinness, you're just talking Cecil. Because these people have a, a penchant of changing their names. That's why it's always Duke of this and Earl of that. So you know, you, they don't want you to know their French and Germanic names. This is another little ruse that they use. Yeah. But those oligarchs, the Kennedys and, and Livingstones and so many other groups who live in Ireland, who have gigantic estates, even the, even the Fitzwilliams and the Fitzgeralds living in palaces, Charles Hawkey's palace. Uh, in England, they show you Blair living in a little council estate. In Ireland, they brag about the, his palaces he's living in, the rooms you can't count. Well, so they absolutely to oligarchy, do. My God, the tourists are there going, that's his house. Look, there's more oligarchy in the Southern Ireland, and that oligarchy was threatened by the, let's just call it, left-wing approach of the official IRA and other bodies to whom they were connected. Whether you like it or you don't, this is just official history. Mm -hmm. So these oligarchs of England, uh, of, of England and, uh, and uh, the Norman, the old Norman aristocracy of Ireland, and many of the ones that were sent over at the time of uh, Elizabeth, as we know, the planters, these guys were threatened. It's all going to go. They're going to take away our orchids, and they're going to take away our horse tracks. Well, gee, what are we going to do? We can't be driving in our Rolls Royces into town because these boys are throwing bricks through the window. They're sick and tired of this. They've understood James Connolly. They understand what aristocracy means and who the real threat is. So just in the same way that they took out Malcolm X, when the, when the, the guys who start on the street level, you see, they get educated. Then they're going to be taken out, just like James Connolly was and, and the Michael Collins was and other great men, men who started to work it out what was going on and that even the organizations for which they worked were under the power. And they start to smell a rat, and then they were removed, right? But this, this group of oligarchs, incredibly powerful, equally powerful as the ones you know about in England, that are all the, everyone you know, saying, oh, look at these, it's England's our enemy. They're sitting in your homeland. Well, this group got together and formed a Provis as a disposable, largely ignorant group with Sinn Féin as their front. Sinn Féin is an ancient history, by the way, connected directly to the Illuminati, directly to the Illuminati. But the, through the Clan and the Gale and other groups, I go into this in all the videos, people can watch, they're all there for free. Study it, research it, as you say, what's the answer, where do we go? People need to continue the research, start small, but keep on studying methodically the information. And then at the end, come along and say, Michael, I don't agree with it, you're all wrong. Fine, I'm happy, shake hands, great. Yeah. I presented the information, they can do it. But these oligarchs are still ensconced. And they're a world network. Their sons and daughters hub with sons and daughters in Europe and all over the world, right? A huge network. Many of them even total, when you want to use the word satanic. Who are these deburbs? The old Norman families. Who are these people? I got questions about this. this is, again, another subject we should maybe do in another show. But there's an entire even satanic network still involved in pedophilia, still involved in slavery, still involved in, uh, in, in a child abduction. Now it's just a little bit as leaked out and they put the, you know, through, through the obvious uh, news headline again, propaganda. Yeah. Talking about the uh, you know peccadillos of the Catholic uh, Catholic ministers, but those Catholic ministers are Knights Templar. That's how they're able to ship the kids across the borders, and so they're not just simply priests. And like the headline says, they're more than just Catholic priests. These people are connected to the Templars and to the Freemasons and many other secret orders that have diplomatic bag who can cross any border unmolested. You see, this is how they're able to do it through shipping and flights and planes and private means to ship the kids around and all the rest of it. A huge satanic ring. Well, those people have gone nowhere. They're still ensconced in Ireland. They just, they do it more through their henchmen and through their celebs. You know, and they, they, they live it, oh, obviously they've always been very camera shy. But they formed the IRA. And I'm not indicting the average IRA guy. I know what was on his mind. I know what he was trying to do. In his own way, he was fighting for his land. Mm -hmm. do, you, do, you know, do you know the respect I have for, the, for Bobby Sands and these people? Immense 
Because I know that as, as misguided as they were, they were loyal to the land of Ireland. They tried their own best in their own way, given the facts that they had. Yes. And they suffered incredible turmoil for it, incredible martyrdom for it. Let me be on, you know, on, no one, I'm not indicting the person who thought he was, you know, taking up arms to fight for his land. That's commendable in every sense of the word. But the trouble is, if you do that, as most revolutionary cells have done, well-meaning people through the world have done this in a well-meaning way. But unfortunately, if you do it without the main facts of knowing this, as we start off saying the occult history, you may be playing right into the hands of the very fiends that you are trying to disable. This is the problem. And this is how this divide and rule strategy is included, as David Icke has often called it, problem, reaction, solution. Yeah. You can get into this vicious circle, and before you know it, you're compromised. And OMA, the movie OMA, I've mentioned these on the website, in the article, the movie Hidden Agenda, a little bit leaks out. As I said, a lot leaks out through the symbolism, a lot leaks out through the uh, movies, uh, excuse me, the uh, etymology, but never let's forget the movies. It's, one would want more, we don't have it, but to a certain extent, little bits of the truth leak out in some, several of the movies that I've mentioned. But if people go to my article, and it's right there on the Michael Pissarin site, or just type in Occult History of Ireland and go to the article, at the bottom you'll see the sources that I have that talks about the force these British uh, establishment organizations uh, <clears throat> uh, one's called a Force Research Unit, a British, a secret British intelligence unit, special branch, that was an assassination team that put the Shankle Butchers together, that took the Shankle Butchers out, and took every other paramilitary out when they didn't need them anymore. When the job was done, uh, key assassinations were done you know, when the Anglo-Irish Agreement was being uh, uh, conceived, but the hard men wouldn't buy into it. The hard men were taken out. Job done. You've done your job. You're ignorant. Now we're going to kill you off. And systematically on both sides, the heavies were taken out. Even sometimes after they released them from jail. All that stuff about giving them amnesty to release them from jail. You know why? Because they would be assassinated. One of them was even assassinated from the roof of the prison as he was walking out the gate. Yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you pull that off without inside information? Oh, his enemy just happened to pull up in a car, got in through the gate, climbed up on a ladder on the roof and went, I'm waiting for you, Jimmy. And I think I, a, a lot of what goes on relies on people's acceptance of... I suppose coincidences like what you've just spoken about I mean the official line is oh that, that's a coincidence it just happened to happen but again if you do some dot joining of course it's not coincidence you, you can have one coincidence you're less likely to have two linked to the same thing if you count 10, 15, 20 a million, a thousand whatever it is they're not coincidences you've got to just join those dots and I agree it's an ongoing subject in all the introductory work of most of my books including Irish Origins I say I am merely jump starting a subject that needs to continue Continue, to be picked up and continued. It lapsed, now it continues. All the world, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not saying I've got the last word. I'm, even, I'm not even saying I'm right. I'm just going by the facts of what I have been able to accumulate through this pattern recognition. From looking at these inconsistencies, like I said about the Norman invasion uh, and, and then the uh, World War II scenarios and the Sir Roger Casements, you know, and the, even the, there's lots and lots of these inconsistencies that don't fit the facts. Like the orig originator of the Irish Republican Brotherhood is John Stevens from England. He's another Englishman. Yeah. He changed his name to Sean of Stephenson, but my God, you know, this is, this, what is this? You know, maybe he was loyal, maybe he wasn't, but there's inconsistencies. And then what you do is you branch out and you see the same pattern being used in South Africa with uh, de Klerk and Mandela. You see, this, uh, and even Lac Valencia of, of Poland and, and whatever. You see the same pattern. This is pattern recognition. You see the same divide and rule policy. You see, you see the same uh, appealing to people's emotions through the media, the propaganda. You see the same... Uh, 
ignorance level, that people have just come out of absolute ignorance, and then even when they come out of ignorance and they can now they're literate, so to speak, they're not really literate, they're just semi-literate, because they're having, unfortunately, to read only the official works that are put on the bestseller list, that are put on television and recommended, or that you might find on uh, the average library, right? The good thing is that we're now on the internet, we have a lot more access to this information, so my own point is, I don't care whether you believe what I'd say or not, you have now one great benefit. You have the tools to go and find out the information for yourself, obviously tied in with your own uh, meanderings, go physically into the field. Uh, Drogheda, for instance, is people living in Drogheda. The whole city was laid out like a Templar skull. Remember we were talking about the Templars and their yeah. skull and how they borrowed that from the tree? The whole of Drogheda from the air was designed like a, like a skull of the Templar. There was an entire Templar city and I think the Templar monument, the Templar castle is still on the hill up there. And the whole city, this is an Irish town. So when you understand that these Templar, all of the colonizations are just waves and waves of the same atomist, solar cult, Luciferian gang, then when you realize that, yes, they've repackaged themselves under Protestant, under Catholic, under whatever distinction, you know, in other parts of the world, it's Jewish and crypto-Jewish and Palestinian, half of this stuff is, doesn't date from more than the 19th century, these divisions. In fact, the very division of most of what we know to be the Middle East was done by British intelligence after the First and Second World War, with Churchill right in there on the mix. And Lord Palmerston and everybody else saying, oh, you Jewish guys have been so good to us working on secret intelligence to bring down the Ottoman Empire and to do all that, bring down the Moorish Empire. Boy, we really owe you guys. So now we'll put you in. So all, the, all these Saudi families and all these Khashoggi's, they're not Arabs, they're Jews. They're crypto-Jews. They're atonists who pose as the people of the country in exactly the same way that the prime ministers do in England and Ireland and yeah. the royal families of these countries do. They do not serve those lands even though they wave the flag from their mast at Buckingham Palace. These people have never served the Britain. They're not real imperial. They're not real royalists. They're, they're pseudo-royalists, lower-level people put in for the camera eye while the real order of St. Michael and St. George, right, the order of the garter, uh, the Alpha Lodges of Freemasonry, all these groups I name. I name the names, and I tell you to go to other authors who have named the names long before I was born to find out who really controls the seats, the Privy Council. Who are they? And, and where they came from? And as I say, these more alpha lodges of Freemasonry, we've talked about the, the Leinster House and the symbolism that they use. This, this dark lodge, what I call the Black Lodge, that operates everything. That they, on one hand, control the Black Preceptory in Northern Ireland, that is behind the, the uh, Orange Lodge. And by the way, the head of the Orange Lodge is in Dublin, not Belfast. Hello. Then they, can, they control the Clan, the Gael, the Defenders, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and the, the rest of them. Sinn Féin, all of these organizations. Now, of course, these organizations are two-faced. With one face, they have to recruit people. All orders. See, people go, you asked earlier, why, how do they do this? Why do they do this? Yeah. We're talking about Freemasonic brotherhoods. There's one thing to understand about hierarchical Freemasonic-type brotherhoods, or, or whatever little, you know, each one is slightly different than the others. Okay, the, the, some of them have nine degrees, others have 22. Nevertheless, they all operate on this pyramidical structure. Why? Because that is a coffee percolator. That is what the gold digger uses when he goes out to pan for gold. It filters out the good man, and it filters in the bad man, the immoral man. You need it. You need it in schools. You need it in universities. You need fraternities, and you bloody well need it when you're going to choose the Churchills and the Blairs and whoever else you see that's going to rise up to rule the state. You need them to be uh, like in a mob, like a, the organization, the mafia. You need, you know, you're not one of us until you've gone and blown somebody's head off. Yeah. Right? You've got to earn your stripes, so to speak. And that can be a quite lengthy process. So you do it through these Masonic organizations. It doesn't matter if they got orange on one side, green on the other. It's immaterial because at the top of the level, guess what? They meet in a point. 
And this is finally starting to dawn on people. They start you off in a partisan way, and they slowly move you out and condition you out of that as you ascend. And people like myself who study these organizations, for many years you discover this is what they do. The bridge is at the top in which they finally meet and go all of these organizations from the dawn of time, the dragon court. And by the way, the G in the center of masonry, the lowercase g, is a serpent. And that opens the whole dirty ball of wax right back to the ancient time. This yeah. G is the letter in its lowercase that represents the serpent brother, the dragon court, of which I've written extensively. Now, that order knows how to divide and rule. They know how to blind you with light. And they give you a promise in these Masonic orders, or they stir you up because of some partisan bias. Join us, lads. If you, and again, one of the movies I forgot to mention earlier is The Molly Maguire's with Sean Connery. Watch that movie with educated eyes because they blow the bloody whistle that later on when the Sean... When the, when the uh, Harris character, Richard Harris character, is being initiated, first he thinks he's being initiated into a more of a public order, ancient order of Hibernians, right? He actually thinks that's what it is. It's just it's a, bit of, you know, a bit of fun. And then he's shown that, no, actually, you're not. You're going to be initiated now into a much more secret order. In that movie, which is based on an Arthur Conan Doyle book, by the way, uh, I believe called Study in Scarlet, they blow the whistle in that movie. And if you watch, they don't mention it in the movie, but in the book, the image, or excuse me, the emblem of this order, this Irishman who's initiated into the secret order, right? Many years later, he left America after his criminal history and he tries to hide out in England. He's got money and he bought a mansion and he's subsequently killed. And when Sherlock Holmes comes to look at the body and later Holmes will tell the whole story, back, back tell the story, an incredible book. But the logo that's been burned into the skin of the dead Republican, the dead secret society guy, is a triangle, a pyramid. See, so it's little anecdotes like this that when you read, read, read all of these miscellaneous people, all the people that I honor and mention throughout my work, you start to find out that this pyramidical order is done to filter out the good men, people who are moral, people who are religious, people yep. who love God, love their country. They're no good to you. you they're, not, they're not duplicitous. They don't want to work. They're not going to be good sheep in wolves' clothing, right? Yeah. They, they can't take it. So what you do is you filter them out and you give them lower level you know, duties or you just get rid of them completely and you wait until the perfect kind of person, marvelous, greedy, hungry, avaricious, duplicitous, willing to stab his brother in the back, that is who you then matriculate up the ranks and give them their three stripes, you see, and say, brother, you're twice born. Let's get to work. We've got countries for you to rule. We've got organizations for you to head. You've got to be the dean of this college. You're going to be the dean of that college. Here, let's stick a collar on you. Get out there and babble some rubbish to the flock, to the sheep. Right? They put you in position. Shake hands over here. Join this organization over there. Charities. Charities, which is also part of the whole satanic network involving the uh, abduction of the children. Charity, 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 which is done now. You know, they don't do it the more obvious way. Nothing too much is any more gun to the head, or it's obvious. It's done through much more sinister, but much more subtle and clever orbs. Yeah. Yeah, this is how it's done. But this, these, just always understand that once you've joined one of these fraternities, you're going to transform. You're going to be t twice born out of the world in which you live, the world of ignorance. That's why you watch the orange d parades, you know, you'll see the coffin, the symbol of the octagonal coffin, the ladder, what have you. They say that you're going to die, pal, and you're going to be born again, and you're going to be risen into a new understanding, not Christian not Muslim, not Jewish. That's all bogus. We're going to show you behind the lodge door, the blue and the green, the blue and the red don't mean nothing. If it meant something, then I got really, see, once you accept the mainstream line, then you cannot explain those two anecdotes that I spoke of or more. You can't explain why around the neck 
of Hermann Goering, meant to be Reichsführer of Germany, mm. the great pilot, the great lover of his country. But he has the Italian Knights of Malta cross around his neck, an Italian organization run by Vatican City. Hmm, difficult that. Can't understand that quite right. And, and as I say, on and on it goes. Oh, the Rothschilds, a Jewish family, being the keepers of the Vatican treasury. Wait a minute, on paper I thought the Jews are hated by the Catholics because aren't they responsible for crucifying Jesus? And aren't they the usurers that the Catholic Church frowns upon? And we have nothing to do with the Jews and look what they did. But behind the scenes, an arch Jewish group of oligarchs, the Rothschilds, are taking awards from the very Knights of Malta and the, uh, and the, and the Catholic Church. They're all together. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I mean. There's a game going on, a cunning game of mafioso. And we've got to look at it. I'm not, you know, I'm looking at my little piece. We need to get together and learn more. I'm being sent information from all over the world on this subject. The time is right to shine the light that they say they love right back on their formless faces to expose them for the creatures that they are. You get, get them off the backs of not just the Irish people, but the whole world, you see, because as, as finely tuned as their instrument is, they are vulnerable. They've left tracks. They've left footprints through the etymology, through the symbolism and so on. And that can bring about their downfall by a small group of intelligent, informed people who say, no more, we're on to you now. And that the time has never been before. That's the other thing I said. Not only is there information to be grasped by the Internet and other things. The other thing is that the time is right now. We have never had this time in history before where intelligent, well-meaning, literate people have access to the alternative works and the education to put these pieces together. That wasn't in the keeping of our forefathers. The only time you ever see it is in a few exceptional individuals, but they're far and few between, John. Mm. Now the average householder can do it. Walk on their dog. They can go down to the city square, look at the cenotaphs, check out the geomancy involved, the symbolism, the, the, hier the hieroglyphics, the Masonic. You know, I've got people all over the world doing this now. They've been turned on by my work and my colleagues. And this is happening. I'm getting information from all over the world. Incredible stuff to take the lid off of this nonsense. I go a lot deeper, of course, into the deep ancient history, but you don't even need to go there. Just look at what's topically happening in your, in your, in your sphere of action right now in, in the world of today. Absolutely. And I think um, e even to look at some recent events, you spoke about, uh, about Marty and Lizzie and the handshake, but even before that, the celebrations for the Queen's, the, uh, the Jubilee. And I mean, we were bombarded with this on TV and on radio and in newspapers and basically throughout the whole mainstream and the, these fantastic celebrations. What a great woman she is, etc., etc. But if you actually looked again a little bit closer and you looked at the symbolism and the contradiction presented by the symbolism, so many of the royal symbols and the emblems that they use are the exact same as the symbols and emblems used within Vatican, which supposedly is the polar opposite of, of what the crown is about. And this stuff is all eye-opening. If people can't look at that and question themselves that there must be something amiss there, well, then that, that's for them to worry about. But it's so obvious and so in our faces, and we do for the first time, I think, in history, have open access to so much information that was previously hidden. We don't have to go down to a library to research this anymore. We can walk out in the street, as you said. We can go online, which, I mean, is, is a massive resource. And it has blown the whole thing wide open, I think, to the common man, such as myself, Exactly, and there's, there's so many intriguing aspects of this, you know, uh, one who loves the, the etymology will obviously investigate that more, those who love the symbolism, those who love looking at the, the daily events and putting it together, even people who are into astrology, you know, occult astrology, where they, like you said, the Queen came last year during Beltane, very, very unusual since all <laughs> invasions of Ireland yeah. happened have been done May 1st, there she is, putting her foot on Ireland, yep, the symbolist is not, uh, you know, bamboozled by that. Now she arrives again at a very important uh, astrological period. 
uh, connected more to the female Illuminati uh, situation. But let's see, these people have always been slurring, you know, and, and making uh, slurs on the Irish people. They, they, they know what we don't know. We're digging up land bridges and only discovering this now. Do you know that the Vatican Library and, and the royals have always known about this, that they have the maps, what might be new to us? They know. They know what I said when I said that the Phoenicians who created the alphabet were Irish. Mm-hmm. Phoenicians in some maritime wandering group. As Commons Beaumont said, they came from northern Scotland. They're Scots-Irish in the most ancient of times. They weren't even called Phoenicians. They were originally called Sidonians or Arcadians. And every culture in the world, as far as you can go, and we can't even, we're finding new countries every day that the, the blonde, red-headed, blue-eyed guys were there, you see, bringing their traditions and their jewelry and their music and everything. These Hiram in the Bible, when you hear about the building of the Temple of Solomon by this famous Hiram, yes, but he's called Hiram of Tyre because the great uh, Phoenician capital that the Romans later, and the Romans were working for the Atmists uh, uh, that I speak about, that's why they destroyed the city of Carthage. They wanted to obliterate the, the Phoenicians. As I say, the desecration against Ireland has been going a lot longer than 400 years. When you understand that the Phoenician Canaanites were Irish, they were from Britain, then you understand why the Roman emissaries try to destroy them. But coming back to the Bible, Hiram of Tyre, the constructor of the Temple of Solomon, is called Hiram of Tyre because he came from the city of Tyre, or Tyre. Tyre is a take on the word Tara, my friend. The other great city that was known uh, to the, the great capital of the Phoenicians was Tanis. Just look it up, T-A-N-I-S. Tanis was not named that originally. It was called Thara. Take away the H and you've got Tara, Tira, Patira. Egypt, Egypt was also called Tira, Patira with a P at the beginning. These are all references, not only to the country of Ireland, but to the goddess, as I said, Eri. So the area, the Arya were all over the world. This information is coming out. And who is the keeper of this information? Those same Knights Templar, those same, uh, and when we even say Vatican, we're even being a little bit uh, general there. Because it's not just the Vatican, it's the secret societies behind the Vatican. It's yeah. an atmist cabal. Even the Vatican in itself can be considered you know, a front. They're not the prime movers at all. That's just another one of the Leviathan heads, the, you know, in the focus of the public eye. But they're clearly showing you who rules the roost, like the design of the, of the uh, square, uh, Vatican Square, has the symbolism in it to show you the Knights Templar connection, that it's these Merovingian families that were operating in the 11th and 12th century, and they were the ones who had their eyes on Ireland because their ancestors already come to Ireland a thousand years before. So the conquest of Ireland had already taken place a thousand BC, but it took the best part of a thousand years to really quell the people, and also I include the people of Scotland here as well, to quell them. Because remember, the group that you're talking about is a very small group. And even though they're immensely powerful, and they, they, they did defeat their enemies, it still is a difficult to sociopolitically get control of the minds, get control of the people's minds, you see, to sift through all the ancient information. It, it does take time. It's not an easy job. So the conquest is not just one conquest. It happens over time, and they have to call the Romans in to do it. So when we hear to help, so when we hear as, as school kids, oh, the Romans autonomously, Julius Caesar, A.D. 43, just decided to get up one day and come and conquer Britain, although they do admit that the Romans never came into Ireland. Of course they didn't come into Ireland. You know why? Because the bosses was in Ireland telling them what to do. You don't come and conquer the place that's already conquered. <laughs> exactly. But you need help to conquer England. So, yeah, you send the boys there. So the Romans were on call. It wasn't an autonomous action. These people have been low-level mercenaries. Rome is only old as 700 B.C., for goodness sake. I'm talking a thousand years BC is already the Atmos Scythians are in, in Ireland, powerful Atmos pharaohs telling the Greeks and the Macedonians and the, uh, the Romans what to do. 
They're only emissaries for this greater power. Did you know that there was a temple in Ireland, in Rome, called the Temple of the British, in which the, the, the kings of England were welcomed, all the dignitaries of England sat in Rome? These Pisos and Calpurnians and all these other people who were behind the writing of the Bible and what have you, and all the people don't want to hear it? The God that people are worshipping today, in, and I've, I've made the facts available in my books on astrotheology and Irish origins, and as you well know, we are worshipping the God of a psychopathic family, period. Even though through Constantine, St. Paul, and Marcion, you get a bit of a repaint. You get a bit of a repackaging of the old Yahweh Atten job. Yeah. Don't matter. Take it back. It's Mithras. It's Sol Invictus. It's Atenism. And it's Akhenaten and his little psychopathic, maniacal family, and you're worshipping his God. Does that make you feel good? You're talking about everybody else's pagan? What are you talking about? You're worshipping the God of a psych one little psychopathic dynasty that's had a few facelifts, that's it. And everybody's been slaughtered in the name of. This is what passes for your religion. What could be more obscene than that? I mean, I'm sorry if I'm hurting people's feelings here, but I, I am a person who has to cut to the quick. And it's up to the individual to say, you know, go on and look this up to find out where these gods and goddesses come from. And what kind of mind control has been operating on this planet? Of, uh, all, which I say, each individual country's uh, history is merely a microcosm. But once you study that, that's the springboard to discovering a little bit more about the rest of the world if one is so inclined. And it reminds me, Michael, um, there's, there's a video that has been going around the internet for the last couple of years, um, which draws quite a nice analogy. It's called the tiny dot which is kind of a simple visualization of the power of the people and basically how many people, how many of us there are out there and how these families at the top are basically controlling us and how easy it would be if we regained our power and stopped consenting to exactly what's going on, uh, how easy it would be to literally overwhelm the powers that be because the only power that comes from these people is the power that we grant to them. Yeah, I can't agree more. And I would say that... Uh once you want to understand also that it, it really can't be done within, I'm not ruling out, I've never ruled out that it can, can be done, can't be done within the political uh, arena as is. Mm. Although one has to also realize that it's very unlikely. What has to happen is a sort of a disbanding and it, it just ignore it. It's already fallen to pieces anyway, so just ignore it and form a, a, a different group, you know, uh, in whatever way with intelligent people who present a new way, and, 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 and that is happening. There's pieces of this here and there and the other. I'll add, to that, uh, I'll add to that one of my chief messages in public to people, and that is nothing needs to be reinvented. People sit there in a sweat going, my God, this is immense. What can I do? How do we reinvent the wheel? Answer, you don't need to. Your Otto von Bismarck's, your heroic people of the past, you see, your, uh, there's a whole list of names I can mention, you know, the Julius Evilas, the, the Thomas Carlyles, yeah. You know, there have been people, even the Ayn Rands for that matter, all of the things that we need to put in place economically, politically, and socially are already there. Ayn Rand says divide state from economics, freedom, so the government has no play in it. That can be done in America, it can be done in England, it can be done in uh, America. Sure, if you're talking to me over a beer, I'd say, get these royal, I want to, I want to see these royal people gone from the face of the earth. I want to see religion gone from the face of the earth. I know that's too much to ask. So then, all right, let's reinvent them. They, they've taken power. We can take it back since we, they only have, the, as you said, the power that we give them. Yeah. And then we dip into the great works, which the kids are not taught today. But let me assure you, and I've had more time, I could rattle off the names of the great minds, not only the Orientalists, 
or the Machiavellis or, or the great books of philosophy, you know, the Plato, whatever. There's a lot. There's a lot of people. They can take pieces from each if you want. And this includes even the Hegels and God knows so many other people. But there's even more strict bona fide thinkers who've already created paradigms, the Thomas Paines and, and what have you, that is already there to be immediately put into play. But this is an intellectual action. It's not an emotional action, which is why you can't have religious precepts involved. Yep. It is not an oligarchical one in which, oh, uh, we'll throw a lot of money around and we'll get the job done. That doesn't work. It has to be a, pretty much an academic intellectual concept in which people have to step up to the plate, put their partisan beliefs aside. And uh, not, not, uh, when I say put them aside, people always say, there you go, you're working for the New World Order. I said put them aside. I didn't say don't worship them in private. Yeah. Airhead. I just said put them aside when you come to the table. And you may leave the table or we, you, know, you may not be wanted. But the thing is that there are all these beautiful scenarios. I just wish my mind was in the right place. I could list them off. There's some great economic stuff. There's, uh, in fact, actually, yeah, on my forum again, if people go to uh, uh, the section called uh, post-humanism, and uh, I think there's even one called uh, Mankind's Future. I just can't remember right now. But there's a solution. There's a whole bunch there of all these thinkers from economics, from you know, uh, permaculture, from free energy and what have you to completely turn things around economically. Oh, my main message is this. I'll just summarize it. It is not hard. Do not get into the pessimism of the trauma that they want you to say, little old me can't do anything. If, if, if the great leaders of the world fought like that, nothing would ever have got done. Absolutely, the individual has an enormous amount of power. You know, even in the Bible, it says, we're two or more gathered in my name, and I take that name to be truth, justice, and rightness. Then mountains can be moved, right? So it can be done. And the elite know that. They know that their entire, it's like a seesaw. Their whole machinations can fall in an instant through the simple operation of intelligence. One of the most important things is, as I say, to separate the state. That the state should only have one function, policing in the case of war and in criminal prosecution. Pretty much that's it. They should have no say, however, the people of the land earn their money. Yeah. No licenses, not, not a few protectory things, all right, obviously. But for the most part, the economics of a country is done through free trade and what have you. Not through this privatization or any of the subsidizing of welfare states or what have you. And this, this then in turn leads to the restoring of the heavy industries that these countries are lacking. Uh, and then that is a, if you will, a new kind of imperialism, a benign imperialism. Whether, whether it has a monarch at the top, really to, to the, tell you the truth, I couldn't care less. Because I know that what you've seen of monarchy is a pseudo-monarchy. It's not imperialism. Please understand this. It's very important for the Irish people to understand this because there's too many talismanic words being bandied around. Imperialism is not a bad thing. Benign monarchy is not a bad thing. If you know what it is. Yeah. But when you've got a pseudo-monarchy full of Satanists, right, and, and, and just absolute dirt ruling under the name of imperialism, then you're, then you're going to use these terms and you're not going to understand what they're all about. And then you try to come up with pseudo version. Okay, let's have a republic instead. And then, no, wait a minute, let's have a democracy. No, wait a minute, we'll have a, you know, a timarchy. No, let's we go for socialism. What, is that any better? So I couldn't give a monkey's ass if some benign dribbling monarch is sitting up in this thing going, this is great, or not. It really doesn't matter. Let him do, if he wants to play bowls and he wants to you know, ride his horses and those show jumping, by all means, let him do it. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can provide, no problem. But you know something? The state, the parliament... This Leviathan that has been put in place by these secret orders no longer has any power to tell the ordinary man what to do. Man must step up to the plate, go, I am in control of my own life. I am very skilled. 
I can farm, I can dig a well, I can make a chair, I can, I can work with a computer. I am an inventor, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I'm a craftsman, I'm a diplomat. I can, I can do it. I don't need you telling me what I should be doing and giving me a big degree when I'm able to matriculate yeah. and all this nonsense. So it's mostly deconstruction, right? It's deconstructing the models of politics and economic economics that we have today. And it doesn't mean that you're left in a void. There are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant paradigms. In India right now, they've got this thing called the Grania Banks in which they lend money to the ordinary farmer with almost no interest, you see. And it's a communal co-op bank in which you know, farms can flourish. So even in the worst situations of the third world, great things can be done and, and prosperity can come back very, very, very quickly. But when you have an economic oligarchy that although they throw bills of rights in your face and constitutions and Magna Carters in your face and you go, this is wonderful, we're all so free now. Free with chains of gold, what the hell are you talking about? There's no freedom at all. Yeah. Then you have a problem. When you've got sick, psychopathic people running through charities and corporations and you're not able to identify them, then the story never changes. Like James Connolly said, you still have the same totalitarianism in play, but now it's depression. It, now, it, now it's colonialism with a smile. Now you sign on the dotted line. All your present politics is, is enslavement by consent. That's all I'm telling you to deconstruct. Please don't sign on the dotted line and say, enslave me, please. Let me work for 60 years in some corporation in which I am fulfilled every, unfulfilled every day of my life or can be chiseled out by some punk that comes up behind me because he's got the right connections. What kind of nonsense is this? There's no fulfillment spiritually or, uh, and creatively in a man's soul when they're working like this. But again, coming back to the point, it's simple. The politicians are designed to, to fool you to make it look difficult through the schooling and through the, just the propaganda. It's actually very, very simple. There are loads of scholars that are easy to read, easy to understand, and brilliant theses that can be immediately put into play in any country in the world. And we just ignore them. They're in one building, we open our own. They got 10 Downing Street, okay, we got you know another place. And we can organize it. It's not that difficult. It has been done. And it can be done and will have to be done. But it cannot be done if every single person is infighting and being suspicious of each other yeah. and hasn't got the real enemy in their sights, which is the age-old problem. Everybody is, you know, and of course you have many people paid to do this. You have many in, uh, people infiltrating these organizations to make sure that everyone is spreading lies and, and being, you know, dis disinformative. So, you know, but, but again, that's not an overwhelming problem. I think that can be overcome by clever, decent people who, who present uh, a manifesto in a much saner way and present it to the people so that they don't have to buy into what the EU and the MEPs, these hidden commissions that we don't even know who the hell they are. Yeah. You know, and they just tell you what to do. Oh, well, I know who they are. They're telling you through the symbolism, all right? These are the ancient council of the Habsburgs. They're all back. They're back in the Balkans. All these ancient royal families, the ones that hid behind the Windsors and the plant, <coughs> the older groups, the more shadowy groups. It's just them coming right more, a little bit more to the surface. They've always been there, shaded, hiding behind the Freemasonic lodges and what, whatever. And hiding behind corporations, what have you. You know, they put the front men out, the Joe Kennedys, the Onassis's, the Blairs, the Bushes, the, you know, whoever they are funding at the particular time. These are just, even the Obamas, these are just people in the front lines, and even they are very, very low level. But as a matter of fact, even the Kissingers and the uh, Brzezinski's are also very, very low level. They're lower level lieutenants who've got to matriculate and pass through the grades before even they are, you know, given any kind of privilege. So McGinnis and his family and the Adams and his family are now being given the handshake. That handshake says, you've done your job, like Hume, we're going to give you the Nobel laureate. Uh, your sons and daughters are being taken care of. You can retire now. Uh, what corporation would you like to head? Any chances? 
let's open the box of chocolates and ask what flavor do you like yeah. and just you watch that, that guy's career from now on even with Irish politicians you look at uh, somebody as corrupt as Charles High who you mentioned earlier and how he's been almost deitized in the media with his, his palace and his house and this that and the other the guy was a complete crook who sold the country out. I mean, he was followed by somebody like Bertie Ahern. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It goes on, doesn't it? And, and, and they're no different today. And as I said, it, they're only pawns to, you know, move a little, they move a few steps, they get paid off for doing that. They yeah. move the envelope a little bit further. But uh, like, for instance, uh, you know, uh, there's, they have their own little rituals. Some, some rites of passage in the world, some great uh, geopolitical uh, strategies must be, I don't know why this is exactly, but sometimes they, uh, press it through when it's a Democratic Party in power. Other ones has to be through a Republican mode. I don't know why they do this, but there's certain, it's the Democratic Party of the world that is the most sinister. And usually some of the biggest changes, like, like the Bretton Woods Agreement and you know the opening of the Federal Reserve was mostly done under Roosevelt. He's a Democrat. Yeah. So you'll find out that some of the worst machinations that have really turned countries up topsy-turvy have been done through the Democratic parties and the Communist Socialist parties. This is just uh, one of their in in things. I don't know if it comes from the French Revolution or it just pacifies people, everyone voting for the Democrats, thinking, oh, they're such good guys, aren't they? You know, so, I mean, I don't know what that is, but there's also, they have their own little hidden, you know, rites of passage, and this even comes down to the individual. Can they be trusted? What family are they members of? Yeah. Uh, we would give them a little bit more power, you know, or, or whatever. These are kind of a more incidental though. And a lot of that ties in, Michael, to a very interesting conversation we had on this show a number of weeks ago with, um, with Thomas Sheridan, who basically dissected the anatomy of a psychopath. And he described, you, you talk about your percolator system and the pyramid system whereby the cream or the scum rises to the top. And Thomas Sheridan very, very poignantly outlined what type of person and where they come from and their modus operandi, how these people rise to the top. And it fits in very, very nicely with what you're saying. Except one thing. The local common or garden psychopath may end up hurting a couple of individuals who may or may not recover and learn something from their, uh, you know, trial that they went through. Yeah. We're talking about megalomania on a massive level. We're talking about Genghis Khan who wanted to wipe out the, the whole of Asia into Europe, the gray sheep. Yeah. When you got people like that, and believe me, you have them, like Leopold II wiping out the whole of Congo just to get at the mineral resources. The Queen of England doing it to the Native American Indians all over Canada and God knows where else. This whole bastion does not, they're not nationalists. Obviously, we know that now because the globalist agenda has become pretty much uh, understood by clever people. But let it be known that these people, although they say the Queen of England and Leopold of Belgium, they have no, they have no, in, in, they have no national agenda. They have an international global agenda to subjugate the whole world. And it doesn't matter if they're black, white, Jewish, Palestinian. All of these things have been created. Protestant, Catholic, to keep the Irish people see, weakened because they're very strong people. And so you have all this. While they own the land through your living stones and the Russells and whatever else. And then, as I say, time and time again through the Irish origins work and the occultage of Irish work, they damn well know that legitimate disgruntled rebels are going to rise. And I know that the vast majority of the secret societies of what I'm exposing, most of the members were legitimate. I'm only talking about a very few at the top. I know that Clan Gael and the Defenders and even the IRA had very, 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 very loyal and decent people in there trying their best to correct the injustices that have been done to them and their people, and that's grand. But they know that those illegitimate rebels are going to arise. So from centuries past, we're talking now going back again, you have to 
rewind now back into the earliest days of the rise of these powers, back to the 10th century and before. They understood from their great thinkers. And in the 15th century, the Tudor dynasty, you have the Cabot Lodges and the Cecils and the Spencer family, and as I said, the uh, some of these other groups, who were uh, the John D types, who really understood this and set MI5, MI6, all the secret British intelligence into operation and, and, and ensconced these lords all over the place because they knew that the thing that you do to offset true rebellion is to create full rebellious organizations. You slap a nice sticker on the front and you make it look authentic and you, you create a little bit of a rhetoric and you put a nicely grafted British intelligence agent with a nice Irish name or Cuban name or I don't know what name, you know, uh, uh, in there and everyone will rally around because he's the one who's read the books. He's got the million Deutschmarks, Adolf Hitler, shall we say. Yeah. Punk walks into the German Workers' Party, kicks out the guy who ran it, Karl Harrer. He thought he ran it. He was at the back door in five minutes going, what the hell just happened? Uh, what just happened, pal, is a German-British intelligence agent called Adolf moseyed on in there. A billion Deutschmarks was put into, into Berlin. Nobody knows where it came from, though I'm sure it was von Thyssen, Illuminati, and, and, and Helmut Schlacht, who put it there for him, and a bunch of other oligarchs from Belgium, Luxembourg, put it in there and said, Adolf, do your number. Oh, and just by the way, you're the full version. You know all the authentic versions? Ah, we've got to get rid of them. Night of the Long Knives, June 1930, what was it, four or whatever? All the authentic German for German rebels who are fighting to overturn the Versailles Treaty Right, and bring Germany back to a semblance of normality out of the third world status that had been given by France. They're all murdered in one night. Now get this. If you read Mein Kampf, and I mean the unabridged version, most of the ones you buy in the shops is abridged. Get the unabridged version. He doesn't rant about the Jews. He barely only has a few pages on that. The whole book is a rant against the aristocracy of the world, be it Russian, German, British, whatever. He's ranting primarily about the aristocracy. Here's one of these contradictions we can add to the list. Okay, here he is, page after page, the aristocracy this, the aristocracy that, the decadent aristocracy, they're responsible for everything. They sold us out in the First and Second World War, blah, blah, blah. When he just before he becomes Chancellor of Germany, he meets on a ship with the German aristocracy who say, we will make you Chancellor, dear old Addy, if you agree to wipe out Ernst Röhm, all the heads of the German army, and weaken all the actual authentic German rebel bodies that are rising up to free Germany from the shackles that have been put on it. And Adolf Hitler goes, sure. And that turned out in the long run to be the Knight of the Long Knives. So the, the contradiction is he's claiming that his worst enemies is the oligarchy. And five minutes later, he's talking to them as Hess was always. His inner circle was always flying to England. That, that flight of Hess wasn't just the first flight. Yeah, These guys were coming every five minutes to get their orders from the our British aristocracy. It's just that that plane journey banjacks and he got caught. Right? But they had been the, the great Dukes of England, the same Cecils, the same Livingstones, the same Russells, had been uh, telling Hess, because Hess's keeper, Hess's uh, mentor was Karl uh, Hosshofer, the great geopolitician. He was like your typical, you know, Brzezinski of, of that age, and, and, and Helmut Schlacht and these others. So they were getting their orders from British intelligence, and it was a simple matter, they were all good pilots. So they used to make a common habit of it, of flying uh, over there and having agents fly over to England to get the, ne the next uh, consensus of what, what Adi's going to do. They were taking their orders from British intelligence from day one. It's a no-brainer. So this is the same pattern that you see time and time again in other countries, and you see it in the Irish context if you know what you're looking for. You have to know first what you're looking for. 
And I just kind of remember the anecdote that's a, a classic, where there's almost a, a duplicate uh, system here taking place. I uh, just can't think of what it was, but the, yeah, the authentic rebel bodies have to be taken out because naturally they will arise spontaneously. And so the old, old stratagem is to create and fund a full organization with loads of money. Where does this money come from? You see, the, how do all these, how do all these uh, African terrorist groups suddenly get all these guns? Mm. How, do, how do the border Meinhof suddenly get armed to the teeth? How did the IRA get armed to the teeth? Uh, they say, oh, well, through America. That's easy to answer, Michael. Through America, because that looks legitimate, doesn't it? That it has nothing to do with England. Yeah. Yeah, they got, they got their answers. I'm not saying they don't have their answers, and you can certainly believe them if you want to, but I, don't, I no longer have reason to believe any of this stuff because there's too many loopholes. And when you start connecting the dots and really look deeply into the subject and see, as I say, again, the war against Ireland is not just 400 years old. This is what the average person who knows about the struggle and what have you has got to understand. It's thousands of years old. Ireland has a very, 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 very big... Second, I would, I would not even say second to Egypt. I'd say before Egypt, when it comes to culture and civilization, Ireland, Britain has an enormous, and Scandinavia for that matter, these Western Isles, you see, the, the fortunate Isles, the blessed Isles that, that re remained after the tremendous tumult, they had the remnants of the pre-flood, what they call Atlantean. In fact, even like I say in the first page of my Atlantis book, one of the great continents everyone knows is Lemuria, Atlantis and Lemuria. Yeah. Lemuria is mentioned directly in ancient Irish mythology under the name Murias. It's one of the four great islands, Phalias, Murias, Gorias, and Phineas. Murias, L is just the, like it still is today in French. Yeah. The Murias, the land of the immortal serpents. There's your serpent image again, right? Because there's good serpents and bad serpents. So Lemuria is literally mentioned directly in the ancient Irish myth. And what is it described as? A lost continent that fell beneath the waves, and the and the uh, lost, uh, or sorry, the inhabitants of uh, those four lost continents ended up in the shores of Ireland, which at that time was just covered in water, and it took time for the waters to recede. Although they say poetically, they reverse it and say that the land rose. This is the old Egyptian motif of the primordial mound rising from the abyss. Of course, it rose from the abyss, except more technically, it was actually the the water receding from the land. Yeah. You see, and, and mountainous or hilly land had goats and horned animals on it, so the poor starving people who were just in a state of perpetual trauma started to adore and revere horned animals because they were the, the little animals that could survive, and then they provided skins and meat and, and milk for the few straggling you know, survivors. And from those days on, the horned animal, like we said, Cernanos, horn, you name it, uh, became then revered. The stag god became the supreme god of the ancient primordial people, later to be demonized and so forth and so on. They even took their name Goat or Yet or Get or Jack from the name for the goat god. This is where the word Goth comes from, or the Jack Sikhs, or what have you. These old, old Yet, even over in China, they have them in the same group. Uh, the Jutes of Jutland, that later became the Danes and the Anglo-Saxons. Danu, the goddess of Ireland, right, is the universal Dana, Anna of the heavens. The Danube River. Jordan, Jordan River over in the Middle East. The tributary of the Jordan is called Danu, Dan River, that it connects to the Jordan River. These are the things they don't tell. The land of milk and honey isn't Jordan, it's Ireland. And the people who settled in Scythopolis, in Memphis, in the old Phoenician cities of Cain, of Tyre, and Sidon, and Byblos, the very word Bible comes from Byblos, one of the most prestigious Phoenician Irish cities of the ancient world. I can go on and on and on for weeks on this. The facts are there. People can either pick it up or not. You know, people just go to my website. The books are all there on Amazon electronically. Read it. Read it and weep and read it and laugh. 
We had laughed because the truth is finally coming out, reading in a week of the lies that our forefathers had to, you know, struggle under. Why, why, why for everything that was happening in the world? They couldn't identify the enemy. We have, we've got them in their crosshairs now. We can actually identify these super criminals. And that's the beauty of the time we're living in, because you can't fight an enemy or you can't counteract an enemy if, if you're not into fighting. If you don't know what that enemy is and if you can't see them, it's impossible. I mean, uh, especially, especially if they've ensconced their own agents right beside you that you think, hey, lads, let's go. Absolutely. In, in every movement, in every action, it's always the Judas. Everything is stymied by the Judas. So I would go so far to say, I'd stick my neck out and say that almost all the paramilitary organizations in Ireland and elsewhere have been that unwittingly. They have been full opposition, funded from the back hand. You know, there's an old Iron Maiden video called uh, Two Minutes to Midnight. Yeah. Like I say, you get a little anecdotes. Watch that video. If you don't like the music, too bad. But watch the, turn the music down and just watch the, the, the video. They're telling you there that the gangs of this side and the gangs of that side are funded by the, uh, the atomists, the Egyptoid Masonic atomists. They tell you everything in the whole little two-minute video, whatever the hell it is. That's how it's been playing. Many other movies have done even a better job. That Brotherhood of the Bell and, you know, the, the movies I've listed through all my work. It's been, and, it's, and, I'm talk, and I'm even talking authentics, the Malachi Martins, the Father Revere's, the Avro Manhattan's, the uh, John Eric Phelps. There's so much great work out there from brilliant mentors, G. Edward Griffin, and so many other great names that I mentioned throughout my work, copiously, that people can go to say it's not just Michael, is, he's only put his own spin on this, or he's, he's laid out the facts as he sees it, but I'm referencing time and time again great scholars who who knew things and were literate in days that, you know, people weren't even aware of this stuff. Great, great minds whose graves should never be left untended. Because in the political arena, there's too much to lose. In the university arena, there's too much to lose. Professional assassination and occasionally even physical assassination, right, as we know. So it has to be mavericks. So this is the age of the mavericks. And this is the age for every individual also to take up a piece of this. As I said, if you like the etymology, if you like the cosmology, you know, there's a tie into celestial. Remember, we talked about the celestial disaster. Yeah, a lot of my God, there's a whole thing there to be studied. One day I'll be writing on this as well. That forget everything we've been talking about. You can even you can even talk about Irish mythology. This is the characters of Irish mythology of the pantheon. Cool Helen, Lou, Baylor, Nada, all of them are actually in some way metaphors for the celestial occurrences that were happening up in the sky that then got metaphoricized into the folk traditions of the world. A very obvious example of the witches on their broomsticks. That comes from the movement of comets through the, across the sky. The banshee, the leprechaun, a lot of phenomena of mythology is also interpretable, by the way, uh, through this uh, concept of cat catastrophism, which yeah. is very, very central to my work because everything roots. In, in, in catastrophism, not just the physical movements of races we've been talking about in this show, but also the psychic trauma that is the key ingredient in uh, mental colonization, what I call the psychic dictatorship, but we shouldn't even get into that not right now. But in the, in the cosmological disasters that happen, these cosmic disasters, even the mythologies of Britain, or even Scandinavia, Thor with his hammer, the thunder gods, uh, uh, Finn McCool fighting the giant in Scotland, this is actually can be metaphoricized as celestial happenings, the, the breaking of the land, and later on it gets passed into folktales in this particular way, let alone stories like the changeling and uh, a little bit more sinister stuff as well, you see, but there's, there's also a tie-in there, so people can just pick up one aspect of this. Or as I say, the megaliths, prove me wrong. Go and look at Carol Keel, Navin Fort, go down to Newgrange, go to Kerry, and look at the incredible monuments and line them up, go to Stonehenge, why is Stonehenge aligned to the pyramid? Geomantically, it is. Why, are the, why is Kalanish on the Isle of Lewis 
Why is that uh, aligned perfectly to the pyramid? You see, go and prove me wrong. Take out your compass and protractors. I've got no degree in mathematics or cartography. People have done it to prove us wrong and they found out we're right. And I think that's key to it. I think if people actually take some, uh, well, some personal responsibility for the information that they do glean from the world. So if they decide to take at face value what's in history book from school, they're on hiding to nothing if they haven't looked at least at the other side. And as you said earlier on in the show, Michael, if somebody decides to look at both sides and they still remain with uh, an opinion that's opposed to you or to me or to somebody else, that's fine. As you say, yeah. let's, let's shake hands and agree to disagree. But... Far be it from anybody to be able to debate about this or to be able to take something at face value without looking at the other side. And there is a massive, massive other side that we are, for the first time, able to look at now today. Absolutely. Just take it slow. Go to my forum. Click on the Atlantis page of the MSAR forum and just look back at the science. And then go to the War on You page. There's a more controversial page there called War on You. When I knew we were going to do the talk today, I, I re-pasted this one that was a few days ago. I re-put it so it's the last entry on the war on the UK. A little girl in England, uh, excuse me, a, a schoolgirl in, in America, has herself done an incredible research to show that almost every president in America, David Icke and others had already brought this out, but she, in the last week, a story that was released, and it's on my form, where she has connected every single president of America to, to, to a single British monarch. Well, there you go. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's incredible. How can that happen? Now, and, 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 and that doesn't include many more remote people like Pat Robertson and uh, you know plenty of other dignitaries. And by the way, even celebrities. Let's let's not forget. Yeah. Now take her step. Take one step further. What British monarchy are you talking about? There's lots of British monarchs. So there's a big difference between this monarch and that monarch. There's a big difference between the Black Prince, or shall we say, even the ones who are linked to Charlemagne, the, the the opener of the West, the hammer of, of the of the of the the hammer of the Goths. These people didn't negotiate with you. They ordered you to come to their table, and like some mafia scene, they slaughtered them. You're going to convert to Christianity? No, right, you're not going to leave here alive. 400 of the kings of Denmark and Norway and Sweden were slaughtered by these Charlemagnes and the other monsters, you see, that worked for these Merovingians. And then you go even to tyrants like Constantine, who couldn't even make up his mind whether he was a Christian. He wasn't even baptized till after his death. He was still so much of a pagan with his old solar cult. As they, again, face-painted, give a makeover, to their psychopathic God to make him palatable to the West. Yeah. And then St. Paul, uh, you know, people should read Ralph Ellis, he's the expert on that, who the St. Paul really was and what he was up to. Fantastic thesis on that, even though I have many chapters of my own take on that in the Irish Origins books. He gives it another face, you know, he spray paints it again, updates it for the Western audience that would have laughed in its face. Then you have Marcion after that time, you see, and later as it comes down to us through the, the more Vatican organized, the Gregorian system, Another obscenity is thrown in front of us. They can't make up their minds whether they're pagans. And then along comes Martin Luther going, look, we've got to do something about this. Let's strip away all the paganism from it, and hopefully we've got some religion left there. Pathetic effort. You can't do it. Because if people have read my astrotheology book, they know that you can't strip away the ancient pagan myths, uh, pagan tropes and motifs, I mean, from any religion and leave it in a pristine form. You just can't do it. And then there's even questions about Luther's uh, authenticity. Well, there's Rosicrucian symbolism on his earliest manuscripts. There's questions about Adam Weishaupt, who on paper, let's not forget, when I say that most of the secret societies of Ireland are connected to the Illuminati and the Carbonari, let's ask a question then about the Illuminati. Uh, are we to accept the official line? You say, now let's go. Here, we've got occult line, we've got official line. What does the official line say? Oh, the Illuminati, the great anti-royalists, yeah. gone with the royals, a great intellectual cabal of well-meaning 
uh, scholarly men who got sick and tired of not only these pompous, dribbling, loony, lunatic royals, they wanted to get rid of them, but look at these Illuminati also taking on the Vatican and wanting down with religion, freedom and liberty and egality for all men. Uh, let's rise in revolution against the popes and the bishops. Let's darn with this, you know, uh, 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 official religion of Catholicism. <clears throat> Hang on a minute. That's the official story. I'm sorry. For the last 40 years of his life, Adam Weishaupt languished in the care courtesy of the Habsburg dynasty, the kings of Lorraine and Anjou. His, his order was funded on one side by Charles B. Lorraine, one of the most important people to know about in the history of Irish, or any secret societies, including Ireland, by the way. So there you go. There's, it's not Adam Weishaupt who's Illuminati is involved with the secret societies of Ireland. It's the royal Charles D. Lorraine of the Habsburg, Hanoveran, Plantagenet, Angevin, same old coterie, you know, the same gang. And then this nonsense about them being anti-religious. Bullshit. He was a Jesuit. He was a Jesuit a scholar, a, a member of the Jesuit order, who created a faux opposition because the bishops and the popes knew that Catholicism was ready to take a hit, a big hit, that the dukes and the princes, legitimate people, were getting very fed up with the incredible abuses and were thinking of, of leaving it. You know, we have the witch purges and what have you. There's evidence to show that the pope, at that time, the popes and the people behind the popes knew that the Catholic religion had such a bad reputation throughout the world that they were going to have to do something incredibly radical. They were taking a hundred years war here, a thirty years war. There was tremendous conflict, and there was a danger. Remember, when we think of Vatican, it's Mussolini who gave those papal states. When people go on holiday to take a few snapshots of the Vatican, the Vatican wasn't even there. The popes lived for many, many centuries in France. They were thrown out of Rome. It was Mussolini. Here's another contradiction, right? The fascist Mussolini gives back the papal states. Fantastic! What a contradiction. There you but go. anyway, those papal states knew that their religion per se. There were so many violations, you see, of these cardinals and these Borgia popes and what have you. The list goes on. You should read the phenomena that was going on. That so many independent minds, these young princes, you know, who didn't really want to be assigned with religion and were just mercantile-oriented, didn't want to have to deal with this religion, and many of them were throwing them over, actually quite similar to what's happening now, where many of the Catholic countries are desisting from believing in the religion and even going to see the pope and all. There's been a great fall-off, right? Well, this was happening, uh, you know, centuries ago. And so the idea was to create a faux opposition religion that would attract the fall-off members by apparently being anti-papist, to bag those princes and dukes and intellectuals, and it worked. And they did it through their agents, Adam Weishaupt and, and Baron von Nige, and the, and the very, very strong Catholic uh, kings of the Habsburg dynasty, conceived of what we now know to be Protestantism. John Calvin's real name was John Cohen. He was a Jew, and the Jews have always been in league with the Vatican. They've always been in That's another untold story that people need to know about about how the elite Jews I'm talking about, not your common garden religious Jews, I'm talking about the Judites, a very elite group of families of oligarchs who are known as the Hofjuden, yeah. the court Jews. Well, John Calvin was related to those people. Martin Luther's suspect, in my, in my take. There were just another bunch of Judite fanatics who created a pseudo-religion to not compromise Catholicism. Catholicism is still standing today. It's more powerful corporately than it's ever been in its world. Tell me Illuminati is going to bring down the... If it was going to bring it down, it would have brought it down, or they would have been smashed. Exactly. Both are still in, uh, still operating full steam ahead, and you meant to tell me, yeah, yeah, they really were fighting each other? And you can move that scenario over to the, the English you know, situation with the splitting of the lodges, 
and then the, the division. The Order of St. John, which the Queen of England has, is, we talked about the Order of the Garter and the Order of the Knights of St. Michael and St. George. Another one to know about is the so-called Order of St. John. It's the other side of the coin to the Knights of Malta that's Catholic. The head of the Knights of Malta that's in Catholic, it's sitting in Vatican City, the head of that, he, he's died recently, his name was Andrew Bertie, is directly the cousin of the Queen of England, who runs another order with the same emblems by God, the same symbolism called the Knights of the Order of St. John. Only because they've got one as a Protestant front, we drool, and the other one's got Catholic, and we go, <laughs> like you don't know that behind the lodge door, those divisions of Catholic and Protestant mean nothing. Did you know in the so-called Battle of the Boyne, that the Pope sent troops, now you're going to have to strap yourself in for this one, because this is just, I, I find this phenomenal. Every Irishman knows our famous Battle of Boyne, that's where it all happened. The orange men fighting, the, you know, fighting Stuart. It's all going to happen. That's, that's where all of modern Irish history begins. Down with the Pope, uh, except that the Pope, Alexander II, I think it was the third, was it Alexander II? Alexander II sends an, a, a whole battalion of troops to fight in Ireland at the Battle of the Boyne, uh, but it's on the side of King Billy. Well, that's not in your first year history book. Damn right. And now I remember when we were talking about Adolf Hitler, what the anecdote was that I forgot, because it connects to this. Then you do some digging, and you find that, I think it's his daughter. Uh, I've got the notes. People can look it up. James's daughter is married to William. I mean, they're blood-related. There's no Stuarts over here and Hanovers over here. They're one blood. And the anecdote that I forgot to mention earlier is, did you know that they all bank with the same bank in Belgium? That the monies of the, say, of the two orders, the Stuart dynasty, we know that James Stuart I was a Protestant, and the second was a lunatic, right? So these guys, these lunatic kings and the ones that follow them, doesn't matter if they're Protestant or Catholic, they're all mad. William of Orange is directly related to these people. Uh, and the House of Orange uh, uh, history is fascinating. They both, two, these are rival dynasties, fighting, ostensibly fighting over a land. Rivalry, right? They are banking with the same international concerns who are lending them the money to go about doing these kinds of things. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. We have the facts. It was, it, the facts are in the Irish Origins book. And I think I've presented them elsewhere. That, that this bank, the bell, oh yeah, I know where it is. It's on my Constitution Con article. It's on the Michael Tassarin website. Go to an article called Constitution Con. And we have, read that. It's very interesting anyway. And we have in there the whole story of the colonization of America through the oligarchs of Britain and an anecdote about the Hofjuden and an anecdote about the uh, uh, Stuart and Windsor dynasties all being in league together. They just simply, this dress rehearsal looks different for the mugs, for the muggers, and it's just changing over hands because they have their own little private dynasties in fightings and ritualistic reasons why this guy of the blood needs to take over the being the king and this guy doesn't. The very word steward, Stuart being steward, it is simply the fact that all of them are stewards for somebody else. The Queen's crown, the St. Edward's crown or whatever it's called, the coronation crown, it has a little thing in it called the cap of maintenance. Maintenance is another word meaning I'm maintaining the uh, state. I'm maintaining the kingdom for the king, which is something even more dark and, and horrible, you know, than. So all these kings are in their words, often the roots that uh, relate to them, just means that they are sort of uh, stewards, if anything. And this is the same way they picked it up in the American context as well. Because as we know, the Knights Templars left from Ireland, left from Scotland, and went over to colonize America. Uh, that, that's, that's also becoming, you know, a bit more well known. 
And then in later history, they took over through the federal system over there. So basically, the entire constitution and everything is just a nice little document, a little what's called parchment idolatry, to keep all the muggers happy, while the same oligarchs, through their Benjamin Franklin, through their Edmund Burrs, through their Hoffman and through so many other incredibly interesting people like the uh, Cabot Lodges and the Livingstones and the Russell family and the Goykoit Gilmans, people who would know about the Skull and Bones yep. organization and the Opus Dei, all working in concert, cross and crown, crown and cross, double-headed eagles, compasses and protractors, dividing religion on one side, autocracy on another. Once you've understood that they're your enemy, you can easily say, we're going to dispense with this rhetoric we can create our own little, you know, uh, parliament of voices. And let's look at what we can do intellectually. We've got interesting intellectual theories. We don't need to have individuals behind them. In fact, most of the great theories, the guys are already dead and buried. Yeah. They're not patented. They're not copyrighted. Let's bring their wonderful theories together, see what we can do with this. And, and get on to it. And, and fascinating things can happen. And more, all this is doing is going back to some of the already fundamental precepts. And call it traditionalism, if you like. I'm not saying anti-progress, but in the, in the beginning, I'm very dubious about the so-called meaning of progress. That's one of the biggest talismanic words that's ever been used. We're, we're heading backwards at a phenomenal rate when it comes to culture and civilization. So, you know, I'm not anti-progress, but I'm just saying some of the traditional um, formats, you know, when the liberals scream, oh, you're talking about, you know, regress, and you're talking about... Um, Lack of rights. Do you have any rights now? What are you talking about? You just have talismanic rights. You don't have any rights now. Exactly. Do they ask you? Do they come to you and say, oh, we're going to go to war? Or we're going to tax you more? We're going to ask your opinion about this? Nobody asks you for nothing. Nobody asks you for anything. When you're, a job, when you're going to a job of work every day in your life, are you asked anything? You're told, be here at 8 o'clock, leave at 4. Got it? So what democracy do you have now where you're asked for anything? Your consent is going to matter about the Holocaust of the environment, and, and God knows what other colonializations and wars and all these other, you know, uh, scientific and, and, and social developments that are being made, all to chain you. Were you asked permission when the globalists over there and the MEPs at The Hague set up themselves on their thrones of power? Were we asked whether we think it's a good deal or not? Of course not. Right. So what's the difference with, you know, going back to some of these traditional models of the past? People are going to do it now. Every film is retro. Every little fashion is retro. And I said, in a way, that's a good thing. Because the past was bloody better. There were morals. There was standards. There was virtues. There was brotherhood of man. There was a feeling that, you know, what your, your word is your bond. You don't need pieces of paper to prove it in lawsuits. Well, the sooner we get back to some of that stuff, the better. It doesn't mean you're conservative. You're this. Those are the talismanic terms. Exactly. Labels. People love labels in this day and age. Love labels. And through these labels, man has been completely bamboozled because these talking heads on TV are going to tell you this and that and the other. People got to step beyond this and go, look, we are just humanity who want to do the right thing. But you start doing the right thing for your country, your state first. I couldn't agree more. It's consent. It's power. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Michael Tessarian. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today on Alchemy. Hopefully, we'll have you back very, very soon. I'd love to do that, John. And again, thanks for the opportunity. It's always great to talk to somebody that knows what they're talking about and that gives me the opportunity to you know, speak about this subject. Absolutely. The pleasure's all mine. Ciao, pal. Thanks a lot. Alchemy Radio.
hours more than both gallant and gay. Twenty-four ladies who went out on the quay, and a regiment of soldiers that did pass them by. A drummer and one of them soon caught his eye. He went to his comrade and to him did say, Twenty-four ladies I saw yesterday Oh, and one of them ladies she has in me heart won And if she denies me I'm surely undone Go to this lady and tell her your mind Tell her she's wounded to your poor heart inside Go and tell her she's wounded to your poor heart full sore And if she denies you what can she do more? So early next morning this young man arose To rest himself up in a fine suit of clothes With the watch in his pocket and a cane in his hand Salute him the ladies, he walked down the strand He went up to her and he said, pardon me Pardon me, lady, for making so free On me fine honoured lady, you have me heart won And if you deny me, I'm surely undone Be off, little drummer, now what do you mean? For I'm the Lord's daughter of Ballycastine Oh, I'm the Lord's daughter that's honoured, do you see? Be off, little drummer, you're making too free On his hat and he bade her farewell Said I'll send me soul down to heaven or hell For her with this long pistol that hangs by my side Oh I'll put an end to me own dreary life Come back little the rumour and don't take a deal For I do not want to be guilty of sin To be guilty of innocent blood for to spill Come back, little the rummer, I'm here at your way. And we'll hire a car and to Bansha we'll go. There we'll be married in spite of our foes. Oh, for what can they say when it's over and done? But I fell in love with the roll of the other on. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Tune in.